This is a loving robot podcast, recounting tales from EverQuest directly from the people who worked on it. And now here's your host, Sean Lord. So I'll start with my uh, my gaming career. We can go before that if you want. I went to school for aerospace engineering, which is a total fun story. Um, like, how do you go from that into making video games? <laughs> um, but I started off at a company called VR1 Entertainment in Colorado, where I got in in um, quality assurance at the time and uh, stepped into the QA manager spot after a short period and then segued from there into community management and customer support. Um, VR1 was a really interesting company in that they were creating the technology behind massive multiplayer games. This was 25 years ago, a long time ago, um, back before EverQuest even existed. And um, they had a game division that was there to basically use the technology to create games to show that it worked. So it created all these different types of games that were MMOs way back in the day. Um, We can get into that more later. Um, But I went from there to um, SOE where obviously I joined EverQuest for, I think I was there for about five years, worked on like eight or nine expansions, something like that. Um, Ended up being the lead for about four years of that. Um, From there I went to 38 Studios, uh, where I became the design director for um, Project Caprice, which was the MMO out there. Uh, That exploded spectacularly. I said, screw this, the games division, or the game industry is stupid. I want to go someplace and uh, after that, I went to Amazon for a couple years. Uh, that was absolutely horrible. So I went back into the games industry. Um, I went to Tryon for a bit. Um, joined Scott Hartsman, if you remember him. He was on your stream recently. Um, from there, I ended up going to Blizzard, where I've been at Blizzard for like the last four years or so. And I just left there about a month ago to go join John Blakely at Mutant Arm. So I just started there like two weeks ago. And I'm in the process of packing up to move up there at the end of the month. So... Right on. Yeah, I think I counted up, and depending on how you count it, I've worked on like 34 titles over 24 years, something like that. So it's just some ridiculous amount of stuff. That's incredible, dude. And um, some extremely well-known stuff. That's hey, Gary. I remember you. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, so that's why I think, uh, looking at the games that you worked on, I think there's going to be a lot of questions, a lot to talk about. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned VR1, and now you're back with John at Mutant Arm. So um, was he, uh, for some reason, I remember you before I remember Blakely and Chris and those guys, really. I'm just more memorable. No, um, <laughs> Blakely's actually the one that hired me into SOE, sort of. Uh, so he and I worked together um, at VR1. Um, I was doing, like I said, support at that time, um, but they were working on a game called Lost Continents, which was uh, sort of an MMO based around like pulp uh, fiction, sort of Indiana Jones-style pulp fiction. Uh, that whole idea where, yeah, anything that was sort of myths and lores from the real world exists, or sorry, myths and lores exist in, like, the real world and in so you go adventuring in the pyramids, that kind of stuff. Um, and I really wanted to get into design at that point. I was having a lot of fun with it. I was giving a lot of feedback. I was learning from the designers there. Um, I don't know if you know Keith Baker. He was the lead designer on that. He went on to create Eberron for D&D. Um, so it learned yeah. a lot from time. And I wanted to segue, but again, I was doing sort of community management and that type of stuff. Blakely ended up going out to um, SOE and being the producer on EQ2 at that point. And um, I remember him pinging me. He's like, hey, we really need community management out there at EQ2. 
I love EverQuest. I, I was a hardcore raider at this point, spending way too much time on that. And uh, I didn't know too much about EQ2. This is prior to launch. Um, but I went out there and I said, you know, I'd be happy to do that, but I'm really interested in getting the design. So I came out there and interviewed with both him and I interviewed with you and Jake at the same time position and was offered both of them. And so I took the and headed down that route. Um, Steve Denuser ended up taking the community management position on EQ2. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, Steve's another one. It seems like he, he went similar similar places to you afterwards i was talking to him a little bit about uh coming on as well but yeah yep. I, I, I remember so i i think that's maybe why i remember you first is because yeah we interviewed you you came on the team and then over time um i got to know john a little bit more as he was working on eq2 and um and then we hired in ko uh a little bit seemed later you were you were already on the team and well established by then right i think so my my science is, has never been great <laughs> right on um so going all the way back what what got you into vr1 in the first place so you have to go way back for that um always been into games video games uh role-playing games i remember um my parents were in the military and uh, we, we were stationed in uh, Okinawa, Japan for a while, and um, also Hawaii. And I remember, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the two. But uh, we were in temp housing for a little bit, and uh, I'm this, I must have been like five or six at the time, this little kid, and uh, bored in a hotel room. And my dad went downstairs to find something for us to do, and he came back up with the old uh, original Redbox D&D basic game. And not exactly the, the best thing for the family to play, but... Uh, I fell in love with it, and that was like kicking off my um, my gaming career right there, and kept playing that. And then I discovered computers, and started making my own games as a kid, and I used to um, program them just for fun to my friends. Never occurred to me that you could make a career out of that. And so um, my dad was in the Air Force, and I was really huge into planes and space and all that kind of stuff, so when it time to go to college, um, I ended up going to um, the University of Colorado in Boulder, uh, for aerospace engineering. It was one of the top schools for aerospace in the, in the country. There And um, met up with a whole bunch of friends, and everybody there is doing, like, CS. I'm like, shit, I should be doing that. This is amazing. Uh, I got together with a friend, and we created a, a MUD based on Shadowrun over the course of a summer, and just all sorts of this fun stuff. Uh, uh, then I got, um, I hit the point where I basically run out of money, couldn't do college anymore, jobs in the area, um, I was always technically capable, and so I ended up getting into a QA position at um, Hewlett Packard. We were, uh, they had a, um, a Unix breadboarding like prototype, and so I was doing QA for that for actually hardware for a while. And mm-hmm. uh, through a temp agency, became and I hopped around a few jobs like that. And then um, just while poking around looking at stuff. I saw that a game company in the area had opened up. That was where VR1 was, and they were looking for QA. I'm like, well, I love games. I'm good at QA. And so I segued from there uh, into VR1, and that's how I got into uh, making games. And over there, I went from, you know, obviously from QA to QA management, and then into, I ended up inheriting, like, the customer support and community management stuff. Um, this was back when the AOL Games Channel was a thing. I ended up building up the AOL Games Channel for the company. Um, flew out to Germany one time. I want to work games for Deutsche Telekom, you know, things like that. Right. 
but yeah, that was how I made the segue from uh, civilian to game development. <laughs> right on. And then the, I guess the the transition over to SOE. Yeah. So it's still like, how did that like happen? If you don't mind going through that again. Yeah. Um, so uh, like I said, I'd been at VR one for. I feel like I'm at every company for about five years, so it's probably about five years, um, working on a whole bunch of different titles. Uh, we did all sorts of stuff, everything from uh, text muds to a flight sim to underwater submarine game to post-op tank games to an, an Asteroids multiplayer clone. There's just tons of these different games. Um, but the one that we were working on toward the end was that Lost Continents game I was talking about. Yeah. An MMO. Um, and at the time, I was playing EverQuest, and so a lot of us were, you know, using that as inspiration. Um, it had just come out, and we were kind of going from there. Uh, and the company itself um, is it it a really weird company. Like I said, it was, it was founded to create the technology behind uh, these games, which sounds really stupid now, but back in the day, it was effectively using TCP. What was it? Using UDP instead of TCP to save packets it was, was sort of what it came down to. Um, so it was the technology behind it. As far as I know, they never sold the technology to anybody. Um, but the games did okay. But that wasn't enough to keep the company going. So at some point, the the founder ended up spinning off the games division and selling it, and it got rebranded as Jalico Entertainment United States because that name existed. And um, somebody else came in to run the whole place, and uh, he was a tool. Um, it was just, just a complete tool and didn't believe that MMOs could make money. Um, this is at this point, EverQuest was already out and just raking in bank, and we kept pointing at it and be like, "Yeah, it can make money. It's fine." Um, but he had the the Jalco Entertainment had sort of bought the company on the strength of this Lost Continents game. He couldn't just shut it down, so instead he started just kind of stripping away the people and just undermining it slowly. And that was when Blakely ended up leaving. I don't know if he left in frustration or if he just left for other causes. Um, went to SOE. Um, it was probably about a year or so after that. Um, things were just they're in the toilet. The company wasn't doing well. They started doing layoffs, and it was really it was on the wall that it wasn't going to last much longer. And that was when um, you know people started pulling other people that they liked. And that was when Blakely reached out to me, and he was like, "Hey, you should come out here." And uh, it was actually the the timing on it was fantastic. I um I had uh, come out there and I'd interviewed, and I'd verbally accepted the offer, and I came back, and I had my HR meeting where they told me I was being let go. Um, and uh, this is the time I was I was still really young. This is before um, I was doing well enough to get relocation, and so I was trying to figure out how to get out there. And uh, they cut me a severance check, which is enough for me to, to to haul my shit out to San Diego and and, and make it. So it was the, the one time in my life it was fantastic to get fired. So. Yeah, it's honestly uh, the same thing. I had never been laid off until 2011. Um, got laid off from Sony and didn't understand severance or any of that stuff until like they convinced me to finally come in and sign the paper and take the check. And I saw the check and was just like, oh, yeah, I probably should have done this like a week ago. It would have been better beer money. Um, so, yeah, and the the thing was I had interviewed and gotten a job two weeks before that. So sort of same thing. It was just like, yeah, perfect timing. Um, so, all right, so then you came out and um, you met the wonderful EverQuest team. Yep. I think it was uh, it, it was a... It was, it was a cool, I mean, um, again, at this point, I was a hardcore raider. I absolutely loved the game. And so I was coming out and meeting all the people that had made it. Um, this would have been around the time, I think you guys were, 
partway through development of Lost Dungeons and Norath when I came out there. Because um, I remember coming in and uh, everybody was kind of heads down trying to ship that. And I, I ended up helping out on the, the live team. Because at that point, the, the, the team was kind of divided up into the expansion team and the live team. And they were working on live stuff. And so I came in and helped out there and learned how to do stuff. And um, yeah, it was, it was a good opportunity to go from there. And then, um, let me see, my, my memory's a little foggy on all this stuff. But um, Gates of Discord was the first expansion after that that I actually did anything with. At that point, I was still mostly on the live team, but I came in to help clean up a bunch of stuff. I did the um, the Zebu zone, which was like the the penultimate zone right before um, sort of the final. One. And that was really funny because I'd come in and again I was I was just learning how to do design at this point. I'd done a lot of other development and I, I knew how multiplayer games work from um, the technology side, the QA side, uh, obviously as a player side. But I was still learning how to do design. And I remember um, I got assigned that zone to do, and so I, I sat down with some graph paper and, and drew up a map just like I would like for a D&D campaign and uh, handed it off to the artist. And there wasn't a lot of back and forth between art and design. It was just sort of art made the zone and design populated it. And I was like, I got this, this idea. I want to have these rooms over here, and I handed it off. And uh, my expectation is that the artist was going to take it, and he was going to artify it and make the rendition of it. And I got back almost a literal copy of my graph paper with the hard angles everywhere, and it, it was really funny. <laughs> so, so that's why uh, that zone, everything's like 90-degree angles, and it was just – it's not aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, – so it's interesting because I think it was also artist-dependent. Yeah. Depending on who you worked with, they may take it and then sort of – go with it and have a really strong sort of uh, imprint on it or they may sort of uh, monkeys paw you or, or I forget the term came up when we went over to the Austin studio uh, the magic genie um, because there's we had a programmer that was like um, and I, I don't want to say passive aggressive but like basically if you asked for something, you literally got that. And it was like one of those scenarios yeah. where it's like, I want to be the strongest man in the world. Okay, cool. I'll just kill everybody else. There you go. Right. Like, and it's like, you didn't, you didn't want to collaborate on the design of that one. You didn't want to no, just kill everybody. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. so that yeah, that happened like, a bit. It felt like, Oh, you want a zone like this a zone exactly like that. <laughs> like, Oh shit. And of course, the, the time frames on these things were so tight, there was no chance to iterate. You got the zone and you ran with it, so you did what you could with it. The textures are little graph paper. Yeah, it seemed that way, yeah. Cool. So then uh, Gates, I wasn't there for. That was when yeah. I did my uh, few weeks on like EQ2 and then and, and bounced over to Planetside Building. Um, yeah, it was then, funny. I like came in and then the entire leadership team changed over pretty quickly. Like uh, it was, I think Rich was the, um, the design lead at the time, and you and Jake were like sub leads, if I remember right. And uh, I think within the year, you guys were all gone, um, and yeah. we ended up having like, just a void of leadership. And uh, this really weird period where I don't even remember how it happened, but I ended up like being tapped to help out with that stuff along with Barker and Troy, and it was just it ended up being really strange. <laughs> Yeah, they pulled, um, so Scott was tech director, Rich was design director, 
I think yeah. there was a new art director at the time that was, um, he had just taken over. That was Stone Perales, um, was the oh, yeah, okay. art director on Gates. Um, and you see the stylistic shift as well. Um, and I was, I was expansion lead. Um, Jake was live lead. And then, um, I don't know. Jake was still there, or had he already gone to like EQOA? I think I started, um, but uh, you guys both departed pretty quickly thereafter. And then Fister was the producer for a yeah. while. Um, he, I think it was, was it Craig that took over afterwards? Was it Clint? I can't remember this time frame on them. I think it was, I think it was Craig. Yeah. Which is cool. I just caught up with him. He's actually at Twitch now, and um, awesome. Yeah, he's he's like the global head of um, business development, I think, at Twitch. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of cool. Did you, no. uh, did you know uh, Chris Lena? He was one of the producers for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up catching back up with him at Blizzard. He was uh, he came in and he was the producer on my incubation there. So it was really funny bumping into him again after God, it must have been like 15 years or something like that. <laughs> It feels like there's like a dozen of the old Sony people at Blizzard now. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, Blizzard's a huge company for one, um, but obviously it's it's also a very prestigious one. Everybody wants to go there. Yeah. Um, and not that far of a drive. Um, no. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so we got, we got yanked off the team um, pretty quickly. Like, uh, we went to... <laughs> um, looking at chat. Um, yeah. So, Rich, Rich Scott, and I got yanked over the course of a weekend, and then, um, then I came back uh, the the day of the um, what was the guild thing where we flew all the guild leaders and stuff in and had like there's a dunking booth in the parking lot. Oh my remember? god! I don't remember the dunking booth. I remember lots of um, God. Yeah, like, like just you're, you're like making synopsis, synopsis fire in my brain right now. Yeah, I it happens all the time here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I remember, I got, I, I don't think I was actually supposed to be part of it to begin with. And I got pulled in halfway through um, just to, to chat with the guild leaders and such. Because again, at this point, I was still pretty new to the team. Yeah, it, but there was actually a dunking booth. I, I, I swear I'm not <laughs> making up because I swear there was like a dunking booth and like Smed was. And we'll have to ask him. I don't know, but I, ca- I could have sworn Smed was Smed was like in a dunking booth, and like angry guild leaders were like throwing balls <laughs> at the uh, the dunking booth right. and stuff. Um, totally not a made up story. Um, and then we had like we had set up tents and stuff for these EQ guild leaders and other folks to come in and like check things out. And, like they play the they're hardcore people. Like I don't know why we're yeah. doing a fair. Um, and then. Uh, I think I could have sworn Russ or or John had asked me what I thought about potentially coming back on the team um, for the next expansion, like briefly, and invited me to sit in on the guild leader, one of the guild leader forums with some of the team members. And I remember um, Smed looking up at one point and going, by the way, Sean's coming back to the team and members (laughs) of the team going. And me kind of going, mm, I guess that's true now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I thought we had worked on more expansions together, but I only worked on Omens. 
And then from that, I actually don't know what happened. So please fill us in on everything from the dunking booth forward. I wish, wish I could remember too. Uh, like I said, there was a there was an odd period there where it must have been during omens. If you came back in, you probably stepped back into sort of a leadership role. So it must have been during omens where we had that vacancy. And I think I think Craig was now the priester at this point, so Fister probably had left. And there was um, let's see, we didn't really have anybody on the team that was just going to step straight into the lead position. So we had that weird uh, that three headed monster for a while. It was myself, Barker, and Troy. And um, just trying to figure out stuff and go from there. And um, at some point, uh, yeah, at some point I ended up being the lead. I don't, I don't know who made that decision or whatnot, but I ended up going from there for like the next, I don't have to count, but it was like, what, six or seven expansions, something like that. Um, from Secrets, I, you know, I pulled up a list because I can't remember this stuff. So it's um, helpful. Yeah, we did. Let's see here Secrets of Fade were the Buried Sea. Fine, Prophecy of Road, Depths of Dark Hollow, and Dragons of Nora. Um, so those are the ones I worked on after Omens. So we are going to go through every one of those in great detail okay. individually. Um, yeah. So you may want to Google them. Um, I yeah, know I yeah. The funny part is, you know this, like, once you're in a lead position, you don't get to be hands-on with much stuff anymore. And so it's, like, I don't know how much stuff I actually did in any one of those. It was just a lot of directing and putting out fires so it's it's they all they're all just kind of this blur yeah. yeah so did you watch the vod where the three-headed monster was discussed or is that just a common term that the 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 team had for that leadership uh, I watched some of them, so it might have come up but that's the way i think of it in my mind because it's like never do that that's a horrible idea <laughs> yeah and unless you're handing out like knives and expecting one person to um to be the only one at the end yeah uh, so let's see i'm going to keep an eye on chat for questions um but in the meantime let's keep going through let's see um oh god oh that was the god trip um when smed had everyone come in and say um what cuked them with god and er- and took everyone to a ball game too oh did you guys go to a ball game as well right on um, I immediately left that that wonderful day of um, sun and drinking, and uh, I think went straight into figuring out how to hell to f- get the expansion to release in however many months we had. Um, <laughs> let's good, see. Yeah. So, do you really not remember anything specific to those expansions, or was there some stuff you can talk about? I just saw a question about uh, Dr. Donnie asked, where's the ship-to-ship combat um, that was promised for the Burning Sea? Oh, man. Um, God. So there's this dynamic when you're making games about marketing wanting things and what you can actually deliver, and they're not the same thing. Yes. I think that's where that came from. Yes. So that was looking back at like instancing and like, yeah, we could probably make boat zones and have them go up against each other. And it just, it just doesn't work out sometimes. Oh man. Yeah. It's, um, thank yeah, you, buddy. Yeah. The serpent spine was an interesting one. Cause that was like, like they mentioned, we were trying to create a whole new, as, as he said, a leveling path, um, from one to level the, um, the content, uh, that, that did that was kind of scattered all over the place and it was all pretty archaic and redoing all of it wasn't going to happen on our time frames because we're always doing expansions so the best way we could think of to make a whole new path for new players to come in and have a great path was to do it as part of the expansion 
And so we created the Serpent's Bind, we added the new race and the whole leveling path, and that was a ton of work to do in a single point behind it. It was to sort of create a reset point where players could come in and have something with the new graphics that they could then level through, and the new experiences and everything built with all the new systems. Right on. And uh, so far, audio-wise, things are really good. There's the occasional hitch, so at some point I may flag just like for you to repeat something in chat. If if you miss something, then please do the same. We'll keep an eye on it. Sure. Um, all right. And so um, I don't. I would have to look at the list as well. So are we going through an order? I know you're responding to Keebs's question. Um, I don't even know what the order is. Let me see here. Look at the order. I'll look at the order as well. I need to bring yeah. this up. I'm pulling up Google now. EverQuest expansions. I'm surprised chat hasn't just rattled them all off already. From memory. Yeah, probably. And it's funny because you're doing two expansions a year and the time frames are so tight that you're literally working on one expansion while the last one is shipping be working on the next one and so they yeah. really do just all kind of blend together um yeah and and that was still um all of those and maybe chat knows have have they all continued to be in a box up until just the more recent years or were some of those digital download they ended up going a uh, digital download uh there and uh i remember that was a huge controversy and part of it too is the team wanted the because <laughs> everybody wants a box to show what they shipped. And so they ended up creating boxes even for the digital ones. Like I've got uh, a box sitting over here for Dragons of North. is one of the digital ones uh, that we created just for the team. Hold on one second, and I'm going to, at some point, find expansions in here. I thought it was under character. I, I mean, uh, sorry, not Great. expansions, but achievements. Um, Sergeant Bowman, that's a great idea. Now I just need to find it in the UI. So the order was Gates of Discord, then Omens of War, Dragons of Norath, Depths of Dark Hollow, Prophecy of Row, Serpent Spine, Buried Sea, Secrets of Fadewer. Um And I left at the end of Secrets of Fadewer. So Seeds of Destruction would have been after that, which uh, the seeds of that were just being planted when I left. So. Um, keeps, keep asking more stuff. That's great. Um, so keeps asked, I'll, uh, or he said, I'll keep asking more stuff. Uh, Solaris is my favorite raid zone of all time. Um, but who made event three? Um, who was it? Shakes fist. I don't remember. <laughs> yes. Solteris. Yeah. Every time I think of raids and best raid zones ever, it was probably character. Um, that man was a, a, a reading master. So. Yeah, it's. Um, I was kind of on my way out as scripting was sort of on its way up. I mean, yeah. I know we we kind of introduced it during planes, and then more and more the team was doing a lot of interesting stuff as I was continuing to be more and more of kind of a quasi design lead producer. Um, which it sounds like you expl- you experienced yourself. Um, so okay. then. It sounded like just the scripting and the level of complexity, interesting things that the team could do just kept going kind of like exponentially upwards. Yeah, the scripting system was really powerful. Um, one of the, my favorite things I did while I was there 
just personally creating what, uh, the fabled content where we came through and I don't remember which anniversary it was. I think it was the fifth anniversary or something like that. Um, we went through and we took all the sort of the old rare NPCs everybody knew and loved and we created new versions of treasure that was appropriate to the new level cap and we dynamically leveled them all up in random during a particular event. So you could go and you could camp and guck again and the rare NPCs you remember from back in the day were now appropriate to like the level of 50 to 60 range mm. and get the gear from them. It was all done by a single script uh, that just ran on all the zones. And it was a, it was a f- massive script, but it would go through and it'd say if this NPC spawns, there was a, a chance for it to then spawn as its new fabled version, and it would pull from a different NPC file, and it would seed it with with uh, with loot and all that stuff, and that became really popular. I know they ended up continuing to do that even after I left. Yeah, so a couple of people were asking hardcore heritage zones, um, but that was after my time. Uh, um, but was, I think the fabled sort of led to that. Uh, it sounds badass. Uh, it sounds like a better way than um, how we had to do Eldon. Um, yeah. Because Eldon, I was trying to explain to folks, was like really, truly like brute force, if I remember correctly. It was like 180 or 200,000 records of just sort of like in Excel drawing everything out so that for every five level ranges that it was actually increasing mathematically but then even within it we had pools of like rare names or or boss names or something else that we were doing it's like it was just so much actual manual labor yeah but um the the technology that that had to be created to be able to do that is what enabled things like the the fable to be created too it's a really cool part about scripting is once you've got the functions in place you just kind of go nuts um, but yeah, it allowed some really cool stuff too. Like there's a couple, uh, there's a couple events I remember creating that were a lot of fun. Um, there's two of them in Zevu, um, in Gates of Discord. Uh, I'm trying to remember the names of them, but there was one fairly early on in the zone where, um, as you're walking in, you come across this like big training round and inside it are all these NPCs that are just fighting each other. And, um, the first person that enters the zone triggers the event to, to trigger and all the NPCs in the zone stop and they stare at the person that entered the room and like a big dude calls out like, Hey, what are you doing here? Or something along those lines and basically calls them out and, um, they demands one-on-one combat. They basically want to show how they're stronger than any particular person here. And, uh, they dare you to do one-on-one combat with even the, and this little runt comes walking out and you have to fight him. And as long as the, the raid does that and they just fight one-on-one against the runt, if they win, the event it's fine they can go on their way um, but if anybody cheats um the entire room aggroes and just destroy and so uh, that was all fun scripting stuff so that sounds badass i can't wait to play it <laughs> i yeah. i, I, I haven't played there yeah. um and then there was another one there where i wanted to do um possession like uh, another event where there's these ghosts that spawn and i always liked i always like playing with sort of the dynamics of things the the event i was just talking about the reason i did that is I always felt like it's very easy to get lost in a raid, a raid of 54 people at the time. Uh, you're just sort of a, a, a single guy there, and uh, your contribution is one fifty-fourth of the entire raid. And so I wanted a way that somebody could just stand out. There you go, the gladiator pit. Um, yeah, I wanted a way that somebody could stand out and just sort of be a champion for a little bit and you know, be that star for a while. And then um, what I did, I was looking at the dynamics of... Um, I remember there were people in my guild playing that I absolutely hated, 
and occasionally you get them charmed and you take that opportunity to burn them down. You can mana burn them, kill them, whatever, just just because it's fun. Um, and so I wanted to build that into a raid event and I created these this event where there's these ghosts that spawn and the only way to hurt them is um, possess players. And so basically they'll go up there and they touch a player, they touch a player, the ghost despawns and the player gets charmed by an event that was going on. And the player, that damage done to the player then transfers back over to the ghost who then respawns and continues away. And so the dynamic around the raid was around you know letting them possess the players in your guild that you could most um, most be able to lose from the raid. And back in and that kind of thing. So the, the scripting system is really powerful and a lot of us do really cool things like that. I'm, I'm curious. Um, during that period, was there still like content implementation, was it still using a lot of sort of the base content tools? And I say tools in air quotes, um, yeah. along with scripting to basically put into more advanced behavior. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, we were still doing everything in Excel spreadsheets, um, um into uh, the database for all the data entry. We still have to deal with all the oozins in there. You know, you, you'd still have problems coming in because you accidentally flat kick of two or whatever um, and then the scripting system laid on top of that uh, things got really ugly at some point in there too this is before my time but I had to fix some of the stuff where they went from the original um, invisible shout quest system that caused things to happen to scripting and there were some events that were half scripting half invisible shouts and so you'd have these really weird things where you'd have a script that would cause an NPC to invisibly shout to the zone that some other NPC would then listen to that would then run another script and trying to debug that stuff was a nightmare yeah, I think during that period it was it was it was an interesting transition because it's like yeah, don't if, if you're going to do stuff in the hacky ass way that we used to do it, commit because yeah. at least you can you can follow the data through the tables. But if you once scripting got in there, there's some stuff that like um, Miller put in and some other things where it's like this I don't. I don't know how we're ever going to deep, like be able to track this and debug it. So not to yeah. call anybody out, but it's true. Um, Ethan so, said, did I mean, you do the bubble in uh, Quimini? Quimini. Um, yeah. That's a weird zone nature the gates of Discord. Uh, no, I think that was Salim. I think he did that zone um, before he left to go to uh, Sigil. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Um, let's the see. scripting system was... Do you could you could break the game with that? At one point, one of the designers ended up scripting pathing for a zone because the pathing wasn't doing what he wanted it to, and it brought that entire box to its knees. So that entire server was just the processing on it was thrashed, and we had to redo all of that stuff. Um, that for some reason it sounds familiar. Was that still when I was still around, maybe, or was that after? I don't know. I don't know the timeline. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, um, uh, there was that period because people were really afraid to give a scripting, like for those reasons. Uh, early on, yeah. it was like um, you you could probably do some damage. Um, but that said, we already had like four hundred invisible men under the zone, loading <laughs> the server processes. So, do you remember the plusified tech? I remember that whole thing too. Like we actually that, have you talked about that in your streams before? It's hilarious. We. Had some um, somebody who was on the team dug it up the first night I was waiting to try to get into Aradune. So we were stuck here in chat, couldn't get into Aradune. And I was like, I referenced that 
Steve Burke once put an invisible shout that was plusified that was Sean Lord is a moody biatch. And <laughs> they searched the database and found it instantly. I was like, yeah, it's, it's still in the DB. And I was like, yep, plusified text everywhere. It's so funny. Did you explain why that existed? My understanding of it? Um, yeah. Um, I, I've tried, I mean, it's one of the, you know, few interesting things I did, I guess, back in the day, like was script with that. So naturally I blabbed and blabbed and blabbed about it. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things like in nowadays we're talking about, you know, people are using unreal and unity and that kind of stuff. And so it's fun to have the nostalgia of what we used to do back in the day. And that's one of the stories I bring up all the time. Yeah. Scripting system that used just invisible and how players would exploit it and the workarounds to avoid that from happening. Yeah. No, it's um, just for those of you that maybe hadn't seen that, the, the very short version is um, we could use chat, just like the chat that you're seeing here. Um, just like you would say hail and what carrot, um, we could put in carrot with some pluses in it in different spots and it would n never be seen in chat. Um, but the NPC would still hear carrot. And so we just... We used all of the abilities that NPCs had um, in terms of like uh, events, like triggered a, events that we could trigger on the NPC, like depop or spawn a thing or move to a different spot, etc. Um, we just triggered that with invisible text that we would shout to the zone, and we found some very hacky ways to make actions occur based on that. I think quests quest events and death events and so with yeah. with those things we could do all sorts of weird stuff um so i down a quest one time that was a god what was it? it was like a bottle that shouted to a clock that was heard by a shoe and you know they're obviously they're invisible and they were hidden out in different parts of the zone and just trying to figure out what link broke to, to, to fix this stuff was just a nightmare i but i kind of once i got in the groove i kind of thought it was if you have it all documented well, it wasn't hard to like figure out where stuff was kind of breaking down or whatever. But some of the weirder things were like if you had an invisible man that's your timer based on the fact it takes him ten seconds to move back and forth between points on the ground and shout one, two, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, server lag and other shit could make that ten seconds be fifteen seconds or yeah, so it was kind of hacky. That was the ring war. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Zizania, thank you for the follow. Um, there is a question in chat. Um, Wacky Marv asks, could players exploit it by knowing the hidden text phrases and saying it to NPCs? Um, oh, yeah. The, if they could, it got fixed, I thought, pretty quickly because uh, for some reason I thought you would have to know. I don't know that if you typed plusified text in chat that it would go through in the same way, but I might be wrong. But I, I think they did fix it at some point. Um, early on, though, I know uh, before plusified text existed, it was just uh, NPCs shouting to each other, and you could, if you knew what the phrase was and you said it, the NPCs would listen to you just like any other one because it wasn't on a special channel or anything. Standing yeah, the no, plus added to make it harder for that to happen accidentally. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was just being shouted. Um, let's see. Uh, it, but and then chat lag would actually uh, impact it as well. Right. Yeah. It's the best. 
Um, another question is, do you remember when, as Garrick, I was lobbying you, Rich, and others uh, on test to make a list of changes to get people to play there again? The X2 experience, test copy, uh, keying changes, etc. I regret to this day asking for and getting test copy. Killed the server. Yeah, I remember... Um not that specifically, but there was always a lot of things we wanted to do with test. Test was a really weird environment because it wasn't a test environment. I mean, it was and it wasn't, but it was a it was a it was a real server, and so you couldn't do a lot of things there that you want to be able to do on a test server. Um, like you couldn't screw it up and wipe it because that would piss off everybody that was there. And uh, being able to copy from test to live servers or vice versa, um, just all sorts of oddities that went with that. Um, but yeah, test was always an interesting one. The, the upside is that the people that played on test were super hardcore. We interacted with them a lot. Um, there were a lot of really good people there. Yeah, that community is super cool. Um, and and it really was a community. And I, I thought the relationship between the community and the developers was one of the more special ones that I've seen over the years. Yeah, yeah it was great. Um, one of the questions I was going to ask you about the scripting system and the DB. Now I remember. Now that you've, I mean, put in like another twenty years in the industry, what are your thoughts about that tool set relative to other stuff you've used? It's so funny. Um, I actually really enjoy getting hands-on with scripts. I'm not a, I'm not a programmer, um, but I know enough code that I can at least read code and I can get in there and I can, I can mess around with things. And so more, some of the more modern engines like Unreal and Unity and that move to visual scripting systems, which make it easier for me to pick up and use, but I find them harder to do complicated things. Like it's really easy for a visual scripting system to end up with this like giant spaghetti mess of things that's going on and to keep track of. And some days I wish I could just get back in there and have access to the script again. Cause I, I remember the things we do with that, uh, and like I said, you could you could do a lot of things that are effectively breaking the game. Um, whereas with the visual scripting, somebody has to go in there and create all of these things ahead of time. Um, so I prefer, I prefer having the actual script. That's just me. I noticed that there's a problem that you're describing, but then there's also the problem of scale. And I noticed this when the guys in Seattle were working on the agency. And... I looked at like their encounter design and sort of the visual scripting for it um, in Kismet at the time. And to me, I was like, well, how are you going to, how are you going to build the scale of content that you need? And then is it all going to be buried in individual Kismet, like blueprints or whatever? Like, how, how do you go do mass changes, all of that stuff? And it seems like EQ1 has, it was so bare bones, but it, it addressed the question of scale better than any tool set that I've seen since. Yeah, I mean, it was super efficient. Uh, like, we, we make fun of the tool the tools that we had, um, but you could populate a zone so quickly in there. Um, I remember you'd go through, and it was a hack job. You'd run around, you'd have the, the zone itself, the art, you'd run around as a character, you'd set up a macro that would basically set up to your log of the location of where you're standing, and you'd go stand everywhere you want to put an NBC, you'd type slash loc or hit the macro or whatever, and then at the end of the, the whole thing, you go in and you just import it all into Excel and dump it in the database, and voila, your zone is populated. Go through and clean it up a little bit. Um, nowadays, you got to populate, you got to go in, you got to place each point and move it around a little bit, and you have much more fine control, but it definitely takes longer. I was just explaining this to chat visually, like 
either I don't know sometimes this week maybe where I was just yeah. running around and going I would just hit I just hit it like look 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 maybe type in a note like mm, put something cool here look 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 boss here yeah it was like I could populate a zone in 20 minutes yeah you can do it really fast uh, now going in and tweaking things is much harder like if you get in there and you want to um, you know finesse this NPC so he's not you know there and you want to move him over here, you have to go in and basically replace him entirely. Whereas in you know, one of the tool sets you can get in there, you can just kind of grab him and move him and sort of see where things are. Um, you got the, the visual feedback of what's going on immediately you instead of having to go reload everything. Yeah. Oh God, when I first got there, there was a, what is it? After you had the zone, you had to go build the zone. There was one zone builder box that sat in Salim's cube, if I remember right. So after you go and do all this stuff, you have to wander over and bug poor Salim and build the zone. Um, that got fixed pretty quickly, so you can at least build the zone yourself, though. But, yeah, yeah that's fun. Yep, and it's weird because I've seen uh, similar similar issues ever since uh, on other MMOs. Um, I've actually seen MMOs with zero design tools as well, but yeah. So I, I sometimes I've, I've Missed and maybe it's rose colored glasses, but I've really missed the EQ tool set. Yeah, like I said, there, there are upsides to it, obviously, downsides too. Uh, the complete lack of um, any sort of source control causes no end of headache. Yeah, yeah that's scary. Um, and yeah. Droino, does that answer your question? Because a while back you said, what kinds of stuff do you do as a designer? I, I feel like we're, we're slowly kind of going through some of that. The designer one's interesting. Like as a designer, the way I look at it is, uh, it, it varies by company, but pretty much everything that goes into a game starts and ends with design. Design usually comes up with the idea um, that draws uh, sort of the plan to get it created, then works with engineering and art to actually create the pieces needed to do it. So engineering creating all the the functionality, art creating the visuals. Uh, works with audio, works with all the different pieces, and then usually designs the one that puts it all back together again. Um, yeah. Some cases, we're working with like a quest system, and you know, the designers, they're deciding how the quest system is going to work, what all the pieces, and then designers are the ones that actually use the quest system in the end to create all the quests in the game, that kind of thing. Uh, so it kind of goes, you know, like you see the whole pipeline as a designer. Yeah. And uh, to was it Andruno's question? I don't know that programming knowledge is needed, but it's super helpful. Um, I know a lot of designers that you know they, they don't program. You don't you don't need it. But I think um, understanding how code works uh, makes you a better designer. And being able to get in there and and tweak things yourself, of a programmer is always super useful. Um, not that they like you in their code, uh, but that's its own thing. So. Yeah, I would I would say one of the one of the things that I found. Uh, very useful as a designer was the ability to build relationships with people of other disciplines. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's almost like speaking different languages too. Like if you're talking to an engineer, you need to um, speak differently than if you're talking to an artist, they have different needs, um, different understandings of things. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it can be difficult. You've got to bridge the gap when you, when an engineer is trying to do something that an artist has desired, you're kind of sitting there in the middle trying to translate between the two. Yeah. And, and really just getting an understanding of both the um, capabilities and, and limitations of the discipline, but also yeah. of the individuals that you're working with. Um, that way you yeah. don't get in those weird, like, 
I want it to be like this. And the other person's just, you know, you start butting heads because you're asking for something that they honestly can't do for whatever reason. Yeah. It's one of the fun parts too, is um, especially on the code side of things, anything is possible. And engineers will tell you that like, no, we can do anything. It's just a matter of cost and time. And so it's, it's, it's this big gray area on figuring out whether doing something is worth it. And so you end up doing a lot of um, back and forth on, hey, we want to do this. I'm like, cool, we can do that. Uh, it's going to take 17 years. I'm like, well, shit. Uh, <laughs> what can we yeah. do this? Like that, a lot of negotiation to try to get what you want. Um, but the upside is there's usually, you know, hundreds of different ways to get the same thing done. And so it's just figuring out uh, what your end goal is and how you're going to get to it. Exactly. And and as a designer, I really do think the burden is on you to think of multiple ways to potentially achieve that so that you're not sitting there just like, no, I can't do this until I get a new function. That's typically bullshit. Yep. Yeah, totally. um, There's also part of the, the part of the whole thing is making sure that the, um, the people you're working with know to act when they think things aren't going to work out, um, especially when you're in a lead position. Be careful because you can ask for things and people will go off and do them and they'll spend way too long on something and you don't know that until they're, you know, they're deep, deep, deep into it. And so you have to tell them up front and make sure they got relationship is such that um, you ask for something and they're like, yeah, we can do that, but it's going to be really expensive and it's probably better if we didn't do it or do it in a different way. And right. once you get to that point, you're in a good spot. There's a little bit of that. Okay. So let's take a moment and let's go back through this. What did you hear me say? Yes. Yeah. Um, one thing I started doing um, several years ago, probably more at this point, is uh, I call it goal-driven design. So all of my designs and the designs for my team always start with defining the goals, which sounds stupid simple, but it doesn't happen very often unless you force it. A lot of people just hop in there and start working out the design. Like, hey, we need a quest system. Okay, cool. I'm going to go design up a quest system. Like, well, take a step back and figure out what are your goals of this quest system? What are you trying to get out of it? And that gets you the North Star and because you can always get to those goals in a lot of different ways. And by having those goals defined and everybody being on board and understanding that, I found that that cuts off a lot of the problems. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and more and more, I think, um, design in general, even outside of games, is really starting from that. Like, uh, what outcomes are you seeking sort of approach? And it is making its way into games. Um I feel like, uh, you know, n not to pat ourselves too much on the back, but I do, I do feel like the fact that we're so close to the game as players, we spend so much time still embedded in the community, asking, um, talking to the community, etc. I do feel like a lot of our our decisions were at least atten attempting to address certain needs at the time. And then we had a tendency to be fairly collaborative, but it was very much a divergence, convergence, divergence process um, when we worked. Um, so I do give the team a lot of credit for that back in the day. Um, yeah. Um, so there are a couple of questions. Um, Ethan asked, how efficient did you become at packing uh, after moving every four to five years? Dude, I hate moving. I hate moving with a passion. Uh, I grew up in the military, so we moved every three years. And as a kid, it's super traumatic because every time you move, uh, you lose all your friends. You have to start life all over again. And so I, I hate moving. And at this point, um, I just hire people to take care of it. So I go through and clean up the house and toss out all my shit. But I got I got packers coming to pack everything. 
we were just kind of to move it. On the far side, uh, I think my fiance is going to take care of unpacking everything, so I don't have to deal with it while I, I just work. So that's awesome. I, I just um, I grew up in army family as well. I, and I the story you told about the red box um, while you're waiting to move. It's funny. I swear we had that conversation before because I had a very similar D and D experience when I was waiting to move as an army brat one time. Um, but yeah, what I found is. Um, I'm kind of a strange bird, so I would only maybe ever have, like, one friend anyway. So moving every three years was kind of nice. And then um, and then what I did was I just got rid of all my crap the last few years, so it's easier to move. Um, yeah. And looking at those shelves behind you, you have stuff. Oh, man, there's, there's far more stuff. I got into board games over the last, like, five or six years, and I've just got rooms full of board games now. <laughs> oh, Let's see. The Dr. Donnie asked, um, so who knew how to do the account to account transfers? They need to rehire that person. I don't know if that's anything we can, uh, we can answer. Um, I remember it was a hassle. That was about it. And there was a a very strict limit on who could do that because they didn't want it being abused. So you had to kind of request it. And there was a very limited number of people that could do it. Zemus TM, unrelated to anything. EQ shadows are so bad at a distance. My fiance was convinced that the air elemental was a creepy face with the three uh, shadow polys making a derpy face. Um, you know what, guys? I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to use these shadows because I find them inspiring. For my, I'm, I'm visualizing every time I play. It's sort of a quasi wind wakery, old school painted, hand painted EQ. It's just imagination space but you think of it as cloud sh- cloud shapes you can see what the shadows look like on them and imagine what mm. it looks like I see perfection guys I'm going to disagree with you um Sergeant Bowman um I understand that it makes his own creation easier but do you think from a design aspect that reusing older zones or releasing new content with the same type of zones there are currently three kill zones that all of us use uh, the same app hurts the game that's yeah, just that's the reality of things like in a perfect world you would have access to new art new monsters new features new everything every time you wanted it um, but especially when you're trying to put out two expansions a year, there's only so much time you can do, and you're trying to put out enough content to keep people happy, and so you end up reusing a lot of stuff. Um, and you see it across games all the time. It's sometimes not as obvious, but like animation rigs are super expensive, um, and both to um, to process and to create across games, and you keep a critical eye out. A lot of NPCs even that look very different using the same animations and that kind of thing it better so perfect world yeah it would be better if all that stuff was unique Uh, I'm a bit of a weirdo in the I keep trying to think of ways and this started with DC Universe um, trying to think of ways to make the zones both remain relevant for people that are first coming into the game but also be a thing where you know, and I know games have done a little bit of this over the years, um, but really be that thing where you have a reason to come back, be around yeah. as a higher high level player, and then sometimes have those worlds collide where it's like, I just logged in, I'm playing this MMO for the first time because I, I heard it's a thing. It's been out for a year or two. 
And as soon as I came out to Nariac, holy shit, these guys came to dispatch like this dragon that flew in, right? Yeah. Like, um, we had a cool system designed for that for DCO because one of the things that we were contending with was if you've got Gotham and you've got Metropolis and they're so iconic, do you want them to lose their value over time? Or is there a way to always make them stay relevant? Um, yeah, I mean, part of that becomes its own problem, too. I thought the early zones in EverQuest were great about the um, kind of getting people to come back at higher levels, the zone sweepers, the sand giants, the griffins, that kind of stuff. You'd mix um, the, the sort of mid or higher level players would come back and see the, the lower level ones. Um, but as the, as the number of zones just kept exploding, um, it just spreads people out. And so we ended up with a problem where uh, if you're doing a survey on how many people were in any zone, you'd end up with like, most zones had one person in them. It just isn't great for a multiplayer game. Uh, so trying to keep them all relevant ended up being a problem just because players would uh, end up spreading all over the place. So then you added in things to combat that with you know, zones getting experience boosts and things like that to try to draw people to congregate in particular zones, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's definitely a challenge. Um, Bunny, you said Go Wars 2 kind of does that well. I'll have to dig into that more then. Um, I played that, yeah. Yeah, more familiar with one than two. And let's see. Uh, cool. All right. So we've got EQ. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, before we move on to the next stage, is there anything, was there anything crazy, memorable, any more questions on the EQ side before we move into, because after that you went to 38 Studios, right? Yeah, yeah. There were a few things that happened at... Um at the, on the EverQuest team that I thought would be cool to call out. Some fun, some of the fun things that popped into my mind when I was thinking back over it. Like, um, there was a time where I sat down with uh, Terry Michaels, who was the um, the engineering lead at the time, and I was the design lead. I was always heavy on the system side of things, and I was trying to figure out why... Um, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like adding... It's like some of the stat boosts that were coming off of Druid buffs just wouldn't do anything. I was trying to figure out why. And at this point, nobody really understood the combat code well enough to tell me. So I sat down with him over the course of like two or three days. I recreated the entire combat engine in an Excel spreadsheet so I could go in there and just play with it to figure out what the hell was happening. And that allowed us to see all these uh, soft and hard limits that we just didn't know existed and figure out that type of stuff. So that was really cool. Um, that's where I really learned to love Excel. I love that. Um, we had some... Someone, uh, sorry to interrupt, but someone, somebody was just asking that a question about that, whether or not it existed and, and like who did it, etc. So I, I think it's great that you bring that up as one of your recollections. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I thought of so much about what was actually happening. Um, there, there's so much, because the, the game was so... It was created such a, such a long time before I was there and for a lot of the people. I think... I don't know that there was anybody still on the team that was there from the original days. And um, code tends to spaghettify over time. And the game wasn't really built to be maintainable long-term anyway. Um, it was sort of built to be um, launched, have an expansion, and then maybe a sequel that would do something else. And so we were kind of kludging all that stuff together. So it taught us a lot of what how the game actually worked, which was fantastic. It was a good way to learn how the combat engine worked. Um, it, it, it's funny, that, that actually leads me to a different anecdote, which... It's a great example of how smart the fan community is. Um, where I remember there was a there was a weapon in the game, and I'm trying to remember how this actually worked. So the numbers are probably a little bit off, but there were two weapons out there that had the same damage, and their attack speed was off by one. 
And the weapon that had the slower attack speed consistently did more damage than the faster attack speed. And it was this bug we had for the longest time. We couldn't figure out why. It didn't make any sense. It was like a, a 10 damage 23 weapon. A 10-23 weapon was doing less damage than a 10-24 weapon, which made no sense. Um, I couldn't figure it out. And eventually some somebody on the on the forums figured it out. And they figured out what was happening was um, effectively the servers have their own number of ticks that happen. So basically a number of things that get processed every second. In EverQuest terms, it was uh, 12 and a half. So the servers were ticking themselves 12 and a half times per second. And what was happening was uh, the weapon was actually ending up to... Um, so it would basically it would go off one second and then the next second, or whatever it happened to be, it would fall on that boundary, and it would just like drop the attack, and then it would wait another second and happen again. And it, we couldn't figure that out for the longest time because the player pointed that out. We were actually able to go find the bug and fix it. And that thing had been in game since probably launch, so probably like six years at that point. Just crazy. No, I they figured it out. No, there are, there are a few things like that where I just like the theory crafters, like the people that would go in and like figure this out amazing I, I when john troy got on the team he did something similar because he he had spotted a bug in the code as a player and got on the team and argued for quite a while to basically be shown the the code if i'm not mistaken we'll get him on here maybe i'm, I'm I, i've made this all up um and when he looked and they like dug in and found it he was correct but it was just based off the logic said that this had to have been what was going on um, sorry, I just jumped up and adjusted my headphones because what I do is uh, you won't be able to see them. Maybe I plug my headphones in to these little earbuds or vice versa earbuds into the headphones. So it's more comfortable. And I, um, and I just realized they were facing in a way where hopefully my mic wasn't picking up everything you're saying because it made them make for weird echoey VOD. And we'll have to do all of this all over again. Um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> on a different day. Uh, but I think I fixed it, uh, so we'll see later on. Um, okay, so there was there was that. The the basically um so that was one of the, the combat simulator. There was a there was a combat rework that I'm not sure anybody even really knew about. Actually they I guess it hit test servers, they had to have known about it. This was after World of Warcraft came out and um, combat was much more active there, whereas ours, especially when you're playing a warrior, was basically auto attack and kick, maybe bash occasionally. And uh, so I remember we created this whole combat system that was in there that was much more active and it failed for a, a really great reason that we totally didn't think about. Um, so we got it out there on test servers and players hated it because they couldn't chat anymore. And because everybody was like actively having to combat, you're out there and you're basically, everybody becomes a bard at that point. And um, EverQuest had evolved to the point where combat was um, it was sort of in the background, so you could actually chat with groups around the whole time. And I was like, what a fantastic reason for this whole thing to die. And we ended up being, making a smart choice and not forcing it, and we killed it before it went live. But that's, that's one of those, those interesting lessons as a designer. You have to think about how players actually use these things and beyond just the mechanical way, like how they're using it for social or fun things. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a fantastic example. Yes. <laughs> Bobby Biggs, like, chat killed better combat. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. Um, we put a lot of effort in that, too, but it was the right call to, to, not, to not launch that. Um, I don't know that it's better, right? Just more active. Yeah, it, it, was, it was exactly that. It, it gave you more to do during combat. Um, that was about it. 
And so this is not the pick on EQ2 at all. Like I've actually, so when the server's been down here, I've popped in and played it, that a little bit as well um, on stream. Um, I, th I think it's a cool game, but it it's so active that I'm like, I don't want to do this. I kind of like hitting my two buttons. Sorry, Bobby. Um, maybe it's because I, I, I'm just coming back and I'm old and I'm lazy. Um, but I do like to be able to socialize and hang out and... Um, yeah, I think if I were to make a new MMO, it would it would go back to lazy combat. Um, and I think that's part of the reason the social ties in EverQuest were so strong. There's obviously a lot more reasons to it too, but there was the um, we we allow the opportunity for players to create social ties, um, whereas a lot of games are so hectic these days that you don't. Lots of good meeting time and things like that. Um, <laughs> Especially when you had your spellbook up in your face. I remember that way back in the day. We should bring that back. Uh, Ethan asks, if you had to pick one game that you worked on, shipped or not, which do you wish uh, was going right now and you're on it? If it's unannounced title, just say the company name. Oh, that's easy. That's Project Copernicus. That was, that was heartbreaking when that got shut down. Uh, it was a fantastic game. It was really far along, and it didn't die for any reason related to the game. It was just... The business was having lots of issues there. So, and uh, yeah, that was a loaded one, Nathan. We, we, I even saw that one coming. Yeah. Um, we're going to get there though. Ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's see some comments related to combat, like eight hundred eight, saying it's kind of like the heroic opportunity system in EQ two, where certain circumstances require a specific reaction. Um, and warrior had like sixty hotkeys. Okay. Um, I want to watch combat and I'm at hot bars all day long. Revamping combat is why people play old school RuneScape more than current RuneScape. Uh, Bunny said, "Well, one of the reasons." And then Wacky Marv said, were either of you around when they had the mode where players could take control of NPCs in the newbie zones? I was. Um, and if you haven't seen it, if you check out Todd's VOD, it was his pet project, um, the Project M, the, the monster thing, uh, which was Lucklin era, I believe. Um, so there's a link for you, Wacky Marv. Um, cool. So you've, you've mentioned two now. I think you said there were three EQ ones, and then we can move forward. Yeah, as I'm, as I'm talking about, I'm remembering some other ones, too. Coming from community, one of the things I always did, um, especially when I came in the lead, I tried to get really good, strong ties with the EverQuest community. In-game, and I also always had this... Um, uh, chat channel set up. I can't remember what program we were using at the time, but we had a chat channel that was just always running on my computer where people would just hang out in. Uh, guild leaders, community influencers, just people that I trusted to um, shoot straight, tell me when there were problems going on. And um, that's how we always, well not always, that's how we found a lot of problems that we found otherwise. And I remember there was this really, really interesting problem we, at one point where we launched, it was either an expansion or a major patch. I think it was one of the expansions. And we're getting a server crash bug. And it was one of those ones that was super annoying, not reproducible, not happening too frequently, but enough that the servers are going down every, it was like every half hour to hour or something like that. And I remember one of the guys on the channel reached out to me and he's like, hey, I think I'm causing the crash. And we're like, eh, no way, it's way too infrequent for that. And he's like, no, no, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure I'm causing the crash. He's like, every time I zone, the server crash goes down. And so I think it was Chris Lena at the time. 
grabbed the producer, grabbed uh, the engineering lead. And I'm like, this guy's telling me he's crashing the servers. And they're like, no, nah, there's, there's no way that's happening. It's way too infrequent. There's no way that a player action can be causing this to happen. And at this point, you know, the engineer's been working on this for hours and nobody really had a good lead on it. And so we're like, well, what the hell? Try it. So we tell the guy, go ahead and crash the server. And sure enough, server down. Like, what the hell is going on? Turned out this guy actually could crash the server. And uh, having those those ties into the community is what allowed us to find the problem. In this case, it actually turned out this was an, it was an ancient character. So much inventory equipment and so many AAs and so many things into their character file that every time we tried to zone, the server would try to save it out and it would overflow and die. And so it allowed us to find that bug that would have just been impossible to find otherwise. Again, that's a great example of how the players really loved the game and um, were really contributing to it with that kind of feedback. I remember we gave him like one of the super rare mounts as a thank you. Cool. That's badass. Yeah. Um, do you think... Have you seen that? Um, okay, there you go. Oh, wow. Yes. Ethan's like, oh, yeah, that was me. There you go, see? I'm terrible with names, but I have that memory. That's amazing. Um, George Cato copied me back and forth from live service so many times. My file was huge. That's so crazy. We had a similar moment when Rich was on where uh, somebody had asked in a previous guest if they knew whether or not this story about the guy who said, it was like, um, I used to, he came and says, like, I've been trying to solve this mystery for 20 years. Uh, a guy who ran the Internet Cafe near where I lived in, like, South Carolina or something, uh, said that the this item in game was named after him or... Yeah, this item in game was named after his character. And I want, I'm curious, do you know if he was lying? And I was like, I have no idea. And when Rich was on, it came up again, and Rich was like, oh, no, that was so-and-so. Yeah, totally. And <laughs> they're just like, 20-year mystery solved. Um, awesome. Let's see. All right, so uh, Bobby Bick is asking so he's asking a future question but it's a good one um what do you think about uh yeah. think of amular pronounce it for me amular 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 uh amalor um re-reckoning is this them trying to revive the ip or just pumping a few more dollars out of it i don't know but i think it's awesome that they're doing it because it was a cool game um that there's the story behind uh, Reckoning is a really interesting one too. It was it wasn't done by 38 Studios. It was done by uh, Big Huge Games, who 38 Studios picked up after Big Huge lost their um, the sort of their uh, their parent company and were getting close to getting shut down. And they were working on a um, an open world RPG for console at the time. And the um, probably getting way ahead of myself here, but the uh, the Amalur IP was always envisioned to cross a whole bunch of different things. The the MMO was meant to be sort of the the, the foundational cornerstone of the whole thing, but we always envisioned it being stories and comic books and TV shows and games. And so it was an opportunity to kind of get a jump start on that console. And so we went over and that those guys created a really badass game um, that was reckoning and it, it launched. Really. Uh, after 38 Studios went under, the, the IP ended up bouncing around a whole bunch. And I forget who's doing re-reckoning now, but obviously they ended up with the IP, and the fact that they're relaunching it is really cool. So. Yeah, and um, 
Wacky Marv, look at Ethan's comment below. I think that that may cover it. Um, but yeah, the short answer is no. This is separate. Um, and I, I honestly, I hadn't heard anything about it until Bobby mentioned it um, just recently. Um, let's see. All right, so more EQ stuff, or do we jump ahead in time? No, the one other thing I thought was really fun to bring up. Again, this was with Chris Lena. Um, you know, when you're interviewing with places, they always ask, they always ask you like, "What's the biggest mistake you ever made?" Uh, my answer is always this example from EverQuest, where um, we had an expansion we were working on, and this goes back to the test server and how you know the test server was always kind of problematic because it couldn't like completely wipe it. And we always wanted people to test things out. And so we created uh, vendor NPCs that were in, I think, plane of knowledge at the time that you could go on when you were just on test and you could get access to all the high-end gear so you could test out content really easily. And uh, we forgot to disable them before the expansion went live, so they ended up on the live servers and you could basically get all the high-end gear for super cheap. And we learned about it pretty quickly, but we thought we could manage it. And it's, it's got great parallels to our current pandemic where we just kind of watched the loot and everything spread across the servers and the CS guys were trying to get ahead of it and we didn't want to like roll back everything and shut it down so we kept like we'd lock this account we'd go and we'd clean it up and we'd find that they had spread out to the people around them and it kept spreading and spreading and spreading and it was over the course of like two days we kind of tracking this all down and eventually we ended up having to shut everything down anyway still roll back and we lost like three days worth of progression time and it was absolutely horrible when if we just like jumped on it at the very beginning it would have been much better yeah yeah. And then from that point forward, all the scripts had a check in place to say, if this wasn't test server, <laughs> disable this content. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's super unfortunate. I can, I can definitely see some people being upset there. Yeah. Unpleasant week. Yeah. What else you got, Travis? Um, let me see here. I think that's all the, all the major things I can think of from everyone. more stuff will come up. I was, I was actually, I watched some of the other um, streams like over the last week or two, just on the background while I was working. Mm-hmm. And it kept triggering memories. Like I remember um, I jotted down the ancient ring sand giant thing. I remember one of the first things I did when I got on the team, I was trying to figure out how the hell the ancient giant spawned in South Row. You know, because <laughs> it was like this weird, weird thing. And that was one of the cool parts of being on the team is you actually figure out how it worked. Um, yeah, just like that. I'm sure people know it at this point, but at the time it was just, it was, it was so, um, there's so many rumors about how it worked. Like we stand in this place or it always does this thing and sure as shit, it's on one spawn type that can spawn anywhere in the zone on a loot. It was on a spawn table with other NPCs that were named slightly weird and only spawned at night. Just little things like that. Just the time whoever created that was amazing. Yeah, but it was, it was way simpler, like, than people imagined, right? I mean... Yeah. Yeah, basically, if you just slaughter the zone, it'll eventually spawn, but only at night. Yeah. See, it wasn't that. It wasn't a 9 p.m. 10% chance to spawn. It was... Uh, the spawn tables were set up so that you had a daytime spawn table and a nighttime spawn table. And um, the spawns were basically a bunch of different spawn points scattered across the whole zone. And NPCs can spawn anywhere they wanted to across those points where the spawn table was shared. And um, there was one spawn table that had the ancient Cyclops on it, and it was only in the nighttime area. And the key to it was that um, the things that spawned instead of it were named slightly weird, like a orc instead of orc, things like that. And so you could, if you were looking carefully, you could find them and kill them. 
Um, but it was better to just slaughter the entire zone, but it would only spawn at night. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of sleight of hand. Yeah. Um, lack of complexity, especially pre-scripting. I mean, it was, if people, if people understood how simple things were, um, in terms of the table structure and stuff, then you would see that, yeah, a lot of that, like, um, the urban legends were clearly just urban legends. Yeah. Um, how many quests in EQ from the early expansions do you think are still undiscovered? Oh, geez, probably, probably none. <laughs> I'd be very surprised if there was any undiscovered content out there that is actually functional. Yeah. Um, no, I think I think people have found it all. Yeah. Um, Wacky Marv, they did that on a recent progression server and accidentally put the pop spells and plane of knowledge library during pop. Um, and all the spells spread out quickly instead of uh, needing quested. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's always a shame when that happens. Uh, Lessons learned. I always put fail safes in place now. Absolutely. All right. So if you if new questions pop up or if new memories are triggered, um, we can always come back to this era. But I'm very curious to learn more about um, sort of how things went as as you continue to move through yeah. the next stages. So how did you yeah, wind think, up getting over to 38 Studios? Um, it's it's like a lot of things in this industry. It's friends and relationships. So, um, you know, Jason Roberts from EverQuest 2, mm-hmm. um, he was, uh, he's, he's one of my old friends. He and I go all the way back to college. I actually, uh, I knew his wife before him. So they're like my oldest friends in the world at this point. And um, I actually hired him into VR1 way back in the day. And then he ended up coming out to SOE and joining QA. He ended up being the design lead for EQ2. I was the design lead for EQ1. And then uh, he ended up going out to 38 Studios. And um, I'd been at EverQuest for about five years at this point. And I was kind of, I was at the point where I was, I was looking to do something new because uh, shipping two expansions a year, I really wanted to kind of just branch out and do something else. Um, Blakely reached out to me again. He's like, hey, if you come down here, we could really use some help down there for um, DCUO um, on the system side of things. And um, uh, Jason heard that I was looking around. He's like, you should come check us out, too. Was, uh, he, as he puts it, it was a year to the day after he left, basically when his non out, he reached out to me and he's like, hey, come check us out. And so I, I flew out there and um, it was kind of funny. I um, always had glasses my entire life. And I got LASIK. Um, uh, which is his own big story, but I got LASIK um, like a month before I flew out there. I actually ended up not being able to get LASIK. I had to get PRK, which is sort of an older version of it that takes longer to heal. And so it was, uh, must have been like around like a March time frame because it was kind of snowy. And I get out there and my vision's still a little blurry and their studio is about a mile, or sorry, about an hour west of Boston out in the woods. And uh, I'm trying to find this place, and I can barely see, and it's dark, and it's snowy, and you're going on these little back roads out in Massachusetts, and it was a very harrowing experience that I remember that. But I get out there, and um, I absolutely loved it. Um, I missed, every time I've been in Southern California, I've, I've missed sort of uh, nature. And so I yeah. get out there among the trees, and it's, it's beautiful, and, and all the history out there that you just don't think of when you're a West Coast kid. Like, uh, they're in Maynard, Massachusetts, which is right next to Connor, you know, the the Revolutionary War kicked off. Um, you get the, the, the Paul Revere routes are right through there. Um, just so much history in the area. And their uh, studios in this 
beautiful old textile mill, which was like a million square feet, and they just had an office space in there. It was all wood and gorgeous, and it was great. I got out there, and the team was fantastic. Um, there's not a lot of game development, or there wasn't anyway out there. There was, um, I think Turbine was only the only other major one out in the area. And so they ended up having to recruit people from, mostly from the West Coast. And when you're doing that, um, you end up with really good talent because you're not pulling people that are just like associate level people all the way across country. You're pulling senior people. And so they had a really solid core team. Um, the president at the time was uh, Brett Close, who was a guy I knew from VR1 way back in the day. And they showed me what was going on, and I got super excited. Um, the core proposition behind the game, like, first off, we had R.A. Salvatore writing the, the story behind it. Um, Bob ended up becoming a really good friend, and he's a fantastic writer. I've loved him my whole life. So I was super excited by that. But the thesis behind the whole thing was they're making a game that had an ending to it. And that was one of the things that always bugged me about EverQuest was without an ending, it's really to tell a, a really strong story because it, it it always has to one-up itself. Like, you might have a, a temporary ending, but the next time it always goes on. Like, once you've killed the gods, what do you do next? And you're always trying to one-up yourself. And so the thesis behind Copernicus was you had this story that was being told over a five-year arc. And from the very beginning, we knew that it was going to end. And it, it's all about players coming together as a community trying to save their world. And there was actually this, this trigger point at the end where on a server-by-server -server basis, they could fail. And uh, if they failed, the world was raised and ended up this blasted landscape that became full-on PvP and just nastiness. And if they succeeded, it became idyllic, and the server sort of stayed in that state from then on, and we created a sequel. So I was super excited by the idea behind it and, and hopped in there as a system lead and, and came in working with um, you know, Jason and Steve Denuser was already out there at the time and that kind of thing. And, uh, and we evolved the game over. I was there for about five years, too. So I got in there about a year after they started. So I got in there relatively early, but after much of the early craziness happened, um, like, from what I heard, they had, like, 30 or 40 different races to start off with and things like that. Kind of pared it down to something that was uh, a little more manageable. But, but I absolutely loved that game, and then the team was fantastic. So. Yeah, I, uh, there were a few people that I'd worked with um, beyond, like, you and Steve. Um, I did... I don't think I worked directly with Jason, but I, I knew him just from from being there. Um, uh, I think Nerage, uh, Nerage, Nerage. Yeah, Nerage. Yeah, I always just call Nerge, um, and he called me Lords of EverQuest. Um, so he was out there. Um, who else yeah. was out there? Um, Ryan, Ryan Schwader, if you knew him, he was That's out right. there. Yeah. Um, the problem is my mind, it all kind of blends together. So it's hard for me to remember who came from SOE, who came from 38, who was... Um, but yeah, there's a bunch of folks that ended up out there. Um, so, so Kurt was a, a huge EverQuest fan, and um, he really, I mean, he had the best intentions for creating the game. He wanted to create the game he wanted to play. And so he didn't have any idea how to create games, and so he pulled out people that did. And uh, in the early days, he recruited a lot of people out of his EverQuest guild, which is how... Um, that whole group kind of started up over there. And, uh, yeah, John Boomershine was out there. I hired Boomershine twice. I hired him into EverQuest and into 38 Studios. Uh, uh, he's a great guy. I'd hire him again, too. Um, but, yeah, so um, he got a lot of people from the EverQuest blood out there. I remember he actually used to come out and he'd, like, tour the, the EverQuest 2 team and see how things were on and get advice from Smed. And so there was a lot of a lot of that kind of that, um, uh, that kernel 
in the, the Copernicus IP from the gameplay standpoint. Yeah. By the way, um, Ryan is in chat. He just appeared. I don't know if you saw him pop in. Um, oh. Hi, Ryan. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, what you're describing is funny. Like, as you were describing going out into the wilderness in the snow, half blind, um, yeah. like, I'm hearing the wolves kind of, like, howling in uh, in the forest here in the background. And um, I just had this image of you walking instead of driving, I guess, uh, which probably yeah, wasn't the case. But it, it sounded was, like a, a really badass like facility. Um, it's it sounded like in order to get people from the West Coast over there, though, like there there was a lot going on in terms of that recruiting process. Is I've yeah. seen some reporting on it. Uh, I'm curious. Is there anything you can speak to, or? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it was like, part of it was we had a really cool game. We had a lot of senior people, and as you know, in the games industry, it's pretty insular. So you end up everybody sort of knows everybody, and so you you end up with a lot of people at the studio at Thirty Eight Studios that knew people out there. And so we needed a, a position hired. You kind of reach out and you put your tendrils out, and you bring people out there and lure them out there. But um, Kurt was also, I mean, he's a he's a millionaire, a baseball millionaire. He had tons of money up. He took care of people. And so the, the benefits are really good. The pay was good. Uh, I remember this was the first time that I moved cross country and it was, it was easy. It was like ninjas dropped out of the sky, packed me up and moved me across country and it was all set up again because they just took care of everything. Um, so it was, it was a fantastic experience getting out there. And they were just, uh, it, was, it was like a family. It just really, everybody took care of each other and it was good. So with, with that in mind, I mean, was it just... Uh... Was it was it too ambitious? Was it too big of a project, or how did? I mean, yes, because every every project is too big of a project. Um, that wasn't what caused the whole thing to die, though. It was there was a lot of weird reporting that went on. I got to see some of it. My um, my wife at the time was uh, HR manager for the whole thing, so I got to see inside that a lot of people did, and. And it came down to just the, the folks running the company were making bad business decisions. And the end up the, the sort of linchpin that caused the whole downfall was Massachusetts. And um, if you're on the East Coast, and especially in that area, there's this huge rivalry Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Rhode Island is like, it's got like the short man syndrome to Massachusetts. And Massachusetts is where all the, all the cool kids are. And, Mass- and Rhode Island wants to pull some of that. And so being... Kurt's like a god out on the East Coast. I mean, you could be driving and pulled over by the police and tell him you work for Kurt Schilling, and they'd be like, oh, cool, can I give you an autograph and let you off? He's just got, like, a crazy reputation out there. And so we'd have parties all the time, and uh, this is, again, kind of hearing it secondhand, but he'd have parties at his mansion out there, and I guess the, um, the governor of Rhode Island ended up at one moment. They started talking, and they're like, hey, we should do something. Uh, Rhode Island's got, I think it's Brown out there. This is a really good college. But there's there's nothing really for those people to do when they graduate. So there's this big brain drain in the state where people graduate from college and then they leave. A lot of them going to Massachusetts, a lot of them going elsewhere. And so they're looking to create a tech center in Providence to kind of keep those people there. And they looked up at like uh, Montreal and places like that where the games industry has come in. And they've sort of helped create this whole industry up there. You get like a big company that comes in, they set up. 
And whether they're successful or not, people stay in the area. They create all these little other small companies, other tech, and it just kind of explodes out from them. And so um, they really wanted to get 38 studios into Providence. And so uh, there was this big deal that went down where um, you know, we were looking for funding to finish the game. You know, Kurt had basically paid it out of his pocket to get to a certain point. But it's an MMO. It's super expensive. And mm-hmm. so we needed to finish it. And Providence, or Rhode Island itself, ended up backing a, I don't remember how much at this point, it was like a $70 million loan for the company um, on the condition they moved to Providence and start this whole thing out. Being sort of the, the start of the death of everything. We didn't know this until a year later, but there were a lot of um, conditions attached to it. Um, like one of the really nasty ones was um, there were hiring conditions and pay conditions attached to that where we had to make, we had to have a certain number of people uh, in the studio uh, on certain dates in order to um, get paid, which made us hire far faster than we had to, which increased the burn rate of the company significantly. Um, there was also a like a minimum average salary, so we had to pay really well, and so the burn rate went through the roof. And yeah. then um, the whole thing ends up, I, it sounds like thing was pretty shady from the government side of things too. Like there was this um, uh, this fund that was created to kind of bring in tech companies and uh, I don't know exactly what happened there, but uh, there were some some on that ended up giving 38 a big chunk of this, which caused kind of a, a hullabaloo, which is a fun, uh, to happen. And a lot of people um, got upset about it. And um, politics happened. And said, um, what was his name? Chafee, Lincoln Chafee came in and he ran against the current governor, largely on the platform of uh, corruption around this 38 Studios deal. And he won. And so he gets into office, and now we've got this guy who's basically, um, he ran on screwing 38 studios and does exactly that. And so he, he kind of goes out of his way to make sure that we can't get money anymore and reneging on the deals that were going on. And at that point, we were just kind of screwed, ran out of money, couldn't find additional funding. But all this happened behind the scenes, and nobody actually working on the game knew any of this until after the fact. So we started finding out about it when I remember the first thing I heard was um, one, of the, one of the guys that was working there is his wife was pregnant and had gone uh, for like a, uh, a checkup because oh, yeah. next, next month or so. And the doctor said, you know, your insurance is running out in like a week. I'm like, what? What's going on there? And from there, it all started to unravel. It turns out that 38 Studios hadn't been paying the bills for months. Um Things like our 401k money hadn't been deposited in the 401ks, which is like criminal. Um, uh, the parking fees hadn't been paid, insurance hadn't been paid, uh, all this fun stuff. Um, like the lawyers for the company hadn't been paid. Uh, like I said, my my wife at the time was uh, HR manager. The um, the HR director uh, noped out of the whole thing in the final days. She like literally gave my wife a sticky note saying, sort of like I'm out, and left the whole thing. Um, the corporate lawyers hadn't been paid, so they're not involved in this whole thing. And uh, we actually had a, a, a friend of mine who's an employment lawyer out here on the West Coast. We contacted him just for advice to figure out what the hell is going on. And he's like, send me a dollar. Just send me a dollar and I'll represent you. Because um, being that she was the HR manager at the point, there's some potential risk to her um, mm. that she get caught up in this whole thing from a liability standpoint. And so he helped her draft some documentation that was basically laying off company and doing it in a way that would protect her and protect the people. Um, and when I say laying off, it, in this case, it was actually a good thing. The company was holding on to people for a really long time. We weren't getting paid. It was like a month, month and a half went by. 
you know, people were still coming in because they were passionate about it. And like I said, it was like a family atmosphere. So everybody was still there every day. Um, we had news crews outside every day. It was just, it was a, it was a nightmare, but she ended up, um, convincing sort of, uh, Kurt and the board and all those guys to eventually lay off the company with just, I want to say it was, it was down to the line where it was like, we had a few hours left where we were going to cross the point where if people weren't cut free, they wouldn't even be able to get Cobra. And so they'd be just kind of out on their nose and not able to do anything. And uh, she ended up, you know, basically sending out that letter and firing everybody. So it was a fun story. My wife at the time actually uh, fired me from that job. So, but yeah, it was bad. Um, there was a lot of other stuff that went on there. Um, when they moved from um, from Massachusetts, they were trying to give as many incentives as possible to get people to come. And so there was a lot of things that uh, helped, like people buy houses. So um, they uh, they like, covered all closing costs on, on buying a new house if you did it within a certain period of time. And so we got together, and I, I put my, my life savings at the time into a house there. And then a year later, we had to turn around and sell it and basically lost everything. We had people that um, – there was another time, too, where the realtors were going to help people uh, sell their houses um, that were in Massachusetts. And it turned out that uh, if you don't sell within a person, certain period of time, there's a guaranteed so that people weren't stuck with their houses. It turned out that that wasn't exactly true, and those companies sort of holding on to the mortgages. And once they stopped getting paid by 38 Studios, those mortgages were you know, reverted back to the people. And so we ended up with, um, like a friend of mine ended up with a, a mortgage on a house that they thought they'd sold a year previously, just kind of popping back in, and just really nasty shit like that happened. And was this, was, this was really bad timing as well, because if I remember correctly, this was, I bailed from California um, January 1st, um, 2006 to go work with Blakely in Austin and put my house on the market or condo on the market. Yeah. And it was like right around then within a year, year and a half, the California housing market just like cratered. Um, and so people had, because you couldn't buy anything prior to that for like people were putting down like 500 grand cash sight unseen in California. I mean, I was lucky I found one for like 350 or something. And it was a, you know, old, old ass condo. Um, yeah. but it, it sounded like a lot of people had like $750 million mortgages. Um, I don't know how many of them were affected. Like if the, any of those folks moved out there as well, but, um, just real shit timing, bad situation. I'm, I appreciate the insight because I've, I've read like the Wikipedia entry. I remember some of the articles that popped up at the time. Um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it was, it was rough. It was, it was a bad time. A lot of people got really hurt by that. And, um, one of the good things that came out of it though, is, um, it was a big enough explosion that the industry took notice. And so, Within a few days of things actually kind of coming to a head, there were um, people from studios all across the country, probably even outside the country, had set up in Providence to do like interviews, and a lot of people ended up with jobs pretty quickly. I know SOE came out at one point too, just to kind of help out. And I'm sure some people kind of ended up coming back. And it's it's good to hear your perspective because again, like I've. I've I've uh, started watching some of the like death of games videos and things like that, right? The ones that give the outside perspective of what happened to different things. And on the projects I'm familiar with, I'm like, Hmm, I can see where you get that impression. 
but that's not what I remember happening in certain areas. And I've got the feeling it's a similar thing for the 38 studio situation. I remember yeah. everybody that worked there loving that place so much. Oh, it's fantastic. Like that's one of the question earlier about like what game would I like to be working on again? There's no question. It was, it was amazing. That team's fantastic. Um, there are friends for life that were created there that I still chat with pretty much daily. Um, it was, it was a great team and the game is, was absolutely beautiful. There's a in the in the final days of the whole thing going on, we cobbled together sort of a, a trailer to kind of try to entice some people to hopefully you know fund us again and also just kind of get what we were doing out there so it wasn't lost forever. I know that's floating around out there. You can search for it and find it. Um, it was a, it was an absolutely beautiful game. The lore behind it was incredible. Um, yeah, it was it was super cool. Yeah, the um, I remember the trailer. <clears throat> Like, yeah. I remember that period. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was a lot of, like, misconceptions that went on, too. Like, I don't know where it came up, but a lot of people ended up blaming Reckoning for it, which is just stupid. Like, Reckoning had nothing to do with the downfall. Reckoning did good. Um, it did actually exceptionally well for a game that was, like, the first in, in its IP, because it's creating a whole new IP. It's tough. Um, Reckoning was paid for almost entirely by Electronic Arts, if I remember right. Um, so we were looking at just back-end bonuses on really well but um it wasn't like you know buying big huge and that kind of stuff came out of the the funds that were going toward copernicus that wasn't what caused it it was the it was the burn rate there was um a lot of the money that we needed was actually held in escrow because of the 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 loan itself so even though we got 75 or 100 million dollars only saw like 50 million of that and then um there was this weird handshake deal between like kurt and the governor that we'd actually end up in providence which is pretty expensive so they ended up buying and renovating an old bank, which is millions and millions of dollars right there just to build out the place. Yeah. It's fun stories around that, too. Like, the the mafia is real and alive in Rhode Island. It's pretty funny. There's a... Um, it all around. It's like the Teamsters that were coming in there. There was a guy who was on staff whose job was basically to browbeat the Teamsters into getting shit done. And, and he was a scary dude. I remember we'd see him around the office, like, this is a guy I don't want to mess with. Like, um... Yeah, very much mafia, and in the in the whole like things that came out afterwards, um, like one of the lawyers ended up owning a nightclub in the area, and some of the funds got shuffled to like for his nightclubs. And I mean, we moved in, the elevators and bathrooms didn't work, and they just kind of ignored that. Everybody was taking a a piss in the Dunkin' Donuts across the street, you know, just, just fun stuff like that. Um. Um. Rashir, we're using your real name in here, so I would say that um, any references to organized crime, um, probably keep it on the DL. Uh, I'm in. Yeah. It's, it, I think the statute of limitations of this stuff is way okay. past. Yeah. The mafia never forgets, buddy. Yeah, that's probably um, true. So, um, cool. The. A question I have is I, when I do these things and they go for um, a little while, I don't know if Discord degrades over time. I wouldn't be shocked if it does. Um, chat, is everything still sounding good on your end? Um, I've, I've had a few sort of pops and stuff here, but I honestly, I think it's my machine. Um, normal Discord lag. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Donnie. Everything sounds great for you. Perfect. Um, Delspy, thank you for the follow. Thanks for popping in. Um, all right, Travis. So, yeah, I mean, I was ex 
I was explaining that scenario using Wikipedia it, while also explaining Kurt Schilling and sort of why it's a big deal in the U.S., etc. Um, yeah. To my girlfriend Jasmine earlier today, um, and yeah, the the details of like the four hundred. I think it was a uh, you know for the seventy five million it was promising four hundred fifty jobs and like it was funny her first reaction too was like isn't that pretty big for a game team I'm like yeah 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 like we had a, like a we had people coming in to staff up like community and customer support and we're like two years from launch and just because they had to have heads in the seats in order to get the payouts it was just it was crazy stuff yeah and and especially when there's just like a forced rate. Like it's hard to hire, let alone higher quality, let alone at a forced rate like that. So that's insane. Yeah. yeah. Um, not get thin FML wiki, uh, patriarcha, uh, patriarcha family, Rhode Island, uh, things you learn and sub Sean. I was actually in the army with a dude whose family was from Connecticut. And the story was, well, since we're not naming names, I'll tell the full story. Uh, story was he got in the army because that was what um, the judge offered as an alternative uh, since he did beat someone with a baseball bat pretty severely. <laughs> and his dad would show up in this incredible, like, black, just slightly smaller than a limousine car. With And his dad was super old. And his stepmom was super young. And... Um, they had a custom plate and all this stuff that I won't I won't mention the name, but uh, my my friend in the army had a nice mafia tattoo, big mafia tattoo on his arm. It was very kind of stylized and stuff. And we until we met his dad, we we're like, you got to be joking, right? You're 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 putting us on. Then we met his dad, and like I believe it. And then some of the guys went to New York to hang out with his uncle on a yacht, and his uh, uncle was in garbage collection. And so I was like, yeah, I guess this guy's actually in the mafia. And they live in Connecticut. So Rhode Island, Connecticut, it's all the same thing to me. Yeah. yeah Rhode Island is incredibly small. If you've never been there, uh, it's really hard to understand. I remember my mom came and visited us once, and we drove her around the entire, I mean, around the entire state. And I, I do mean around, like the circumference of the whole thing. And I think it took an hour and a half. It's, it's tiny. Yeah. It's like Luxembourg. Yeah. Um. All right. So... 38 Studios. Is there any more that, that we should cover there? Oh, there's probably tons. I don't know if people have questions about that stuff. Um, I'm assuming people do. Yeah. There's a lot of shit that went on there. <laughs> the good part, like I said, the, the team was amazing. Uh, the game was incredible. Uh, it's a shame that people never got to see it and play it. We were doing something that was pretty spectacular. So I saw, when I looked at the video, like the trailer video as well, like the questions I had was... What stage were you at? Because it seemed like zone populations, in at least one video, there was like some base pop in there. But oh, yeah. also, I know yeah, that. We had, I think we had progression up to around level 20, um, and the zones that went along with that were populated. They had quests in place, they had events in place. Um, we we're looking to probably have gone into sort of a, a public alpha state in within a year or so. So for an MMO, it was pretty far along. Um, what about like the higher end hiring content plans for how to maintain that? I mean, the fact that you guys were thinking five year story arc. Um, yeah, it got, this is, this is where it got super exciting. Um, 
this is stuff that we were also doing in parallel because it was kind of risky. Uh, the whole story was based around um, on for a really long time. I'm trying to think how to boil it down. But effectively, if you take the world as we know it, and if you go with the idea that dragons are the source of all magic, kind of the core of this whole thing, and you get to this world where um, there's this where the mother of dragons, um, Tiamat, she's on this sort of cosmic course where she flies across the universe and she comes back to Earth every set period of time. So I think it was 5,000 years. And she lays a brood. And uh, the brood grows over time, eventually awakens, and then when she comes back on her cycle again, um, they depart with her. And so this is where you get the dragons from myth and legend. And um, at the end of the cycle... Uh, Tiamat destroys the Earth. She always does this and resets everything and it all starts over again. On and on and on. In our particular cycle, which takes place basically sort of like our, our current life, um, it takes place after our current life anyway, um, mankind actually found some of the uh, woke them up and killed them. Actually, I screwed that up somehow. Let's see. She actually, she ends up destroying the Earth anyway because mankind found the woke them up and killed them. And then she lays a new brood. And so basically the earth has been wiped clean. I don't think she actually does that on every cycle. It's been a long time, so you have to bear with me here. Uh, but anyway, the point being is that during the last cycle, mankind found and disturbed and killed off these dragons. They angered the mother who comes back, so wipes the earth clean. We start from scratch, and now we're into the time frame where the game is happening, and the dragons are starting to awaken again. And this becomes our sort of our, our end game content, but it was all built around the entire community coming together. And we're saying dragons here, we're not talking uh, like Vox and Nagafin dragons. We're talking dragons the size of mountains. Um, things that were actually zones that you would play on top of. Um, the raids that took place on them, you actually, a lot of the raid took place on top of the dragon themselves. So we were actually, you know, testing out the technology to allow us to be on top of these moving creatures fighting on top of them uh, inside of these other massive environments. But the idea was the whole, the whole community came together to do this stuff. So, for instance, uh, some of the early dragons were... Um, they're vulnerable to copper, for instance. And then the crafters could get involved in making copper weapons that then the raiders could use to take them on. It becomes these huge quest lines that would play into the whole thing. Um, a lot of this content happened post-launch, and so we were just kind of testing out the core technology behind it. We hadn't created a lot of it. So the, the theory behind it were these sort of these mega raids that the entire server community could come behind. And for each one of them, you could fail. Um, and uh, basically, you're trying to um, destroy these dragons before they could grow too powerful and and uh, you sort of lose the raid. And then at the end of the five-year cycle, all of the ones you've succeeded in kind of help you out when Tiamat comes back and you're trying to defend Tiamat off from destroying the Earth. So it's kind of this whole thing plays out into it. And server by server, they kind of diverge over time as um, certain servers you know, are more successful than others or take out different dragons than others. Um, when a dragon is defeated, it sort of turns into a dungeon zone, so um, you could go back and then play through its effectively its corpse and that environment in the future, opening up new events, new content, uh, new items, that kind of thing too. So, because it was pretty ambitious, it was it was also really cool to to be able to like pull something like that off. Um, I mean, first of all, it sounds badass. Uh, it, it's it's a fun image to kind of hold. Um, the tool set, like if, if you guys felt like you're going to be able to d deliver that, my assumption is that your pipelines and your tools were, were pretty good then. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Like we were using Unreal for the front end, and uh, I want to say it was Big Rule for the back end. So we were using sort of um, off-the-shelf tools, but there was tons of customization that had to happen on top of that. This would have been Unreal 3, I believe, which really is built for core shooters. And so we ended up having to redo a lot of the graphics engine to work for these big outdoor environments. Mm. Uh, one of the, I remember one of the early things I did when I was there before I became design director, I was just the systems lead, and uh, I was helping prototype out some of this content with just a small pod of an engineer, an animator, some character artists, and myself getting together and just trying to see if we could create a giant dragon that would actually walk around a zone that you could attach onto. And uh, we managed to get it working pretty quickly. And so that was a good proof of concept that we could just build off of. Um, the big limitation we ended up on for the size of dragons is actually the zone they can go in, which is kind of funny because we wanted them walking around in a zone that players could then like be perched up on cliffside, bring ballistas into it as it walks past and that kind of thing. And uh, you can only get so large before the, the, the dragon itself basically is just it's not able to move because it's too large for the rest of the zone. Hmm. Yeah, and then, yeah, I could only imagine, like, then if you make a zone that big, unless it's mainly just backdrop, it's like object yeah. count and everything else, which I know we ran into that with DC. It's like Unreal was not very happy with what we were trying to pull. Yeah. Um, like the early, the early one we built out was sort of, you think of almost like a racetrack, where it's just kind of this big, almost like an oval, where the dragon would walk around like this, and you got cliff faces around the inside and on the, sorry, on the inside and the outside that players could climb up on. Um, the whole thing was in different phases. So if the first thing you wanted to do is you weaken the dragon by getting up in these areas and firing ballistas down onto it, and, um, and then you could get on top of the dragon, and... Um, yeah, it was just kind of progressed through a bunch of different phases. And uh, it was built so that it was a different raid content. And um, you can go in there with a raid and try to defeat it. And your success or, or failure would kind of go into a sort of a server scoreboard. And you had to, um, a certain certain number of defeated over a certain period of time to whole thing as a success. That always felt a little clunky, so we're probably going to iterate on that. But yeah. the idea being is that uh, we wanted everybody to have an opportunity to try this stuff out and sort of contribute toward a, a larger goal for the server as a whole. So it wasn't just um, as soon as one raid beats it, you're done. It's the server community is kind of coming together to succeed or fail together. Right. Um, Word, the game we're discussing is an unreleased game. Um, I think only known as Project Copernicus. Yeah. Um, and it was being worked on by 38 Studios. Kingdoms of Amalur would have been the name, probably. So, um, not get thin. FML said that would uh, have been really uh, that would have been incredible. There's a couple of big business games that that have wanted to do something similar. Epic Scale Interactive Creatures recently and had to cut them before launch. Anthem, I think, had initially tried something like that and had to cut back. Um, yeah, it was definitely a it, definitely a challenge. Um, it was so integral to the story we were playing, though, that it wouldn't have been an easy thing to cut. And so we recognized that early on. I said I was there for, I want to say, five years. And one of the, it was, I remember in the first year I was there, we were trying out the tech. So we recognized this was going to be a challenge early and we were building towards it. Um, and because this whole thing played out over five years, we only needed to get like one or two of these in at launch, and the rest of them could be built afterwards as expansion content. Um, I thought I thought I had one more question with regards to the tool set, um, but then I just got fixated on what you were describing. Um, yeah. I mean, all the tools are, it's like any other like game. Like Most of the design tools end up being proprietary because you have these very specific needs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But it was all built off of Unreal, so we had a nice foundational base there. Yeah. Okay, so... If more questions come up... Oh, wait, there was one up there. Uh, Sickwit Wow said, if we are allowed to ask, have you maintained a relationship with Kurt since working for 38, especially since he has become a rather polarizing political commentator? Yeah. That's one of the sadder things that come out of all of that. I have not, actually. Um, I sort of blocked him on social media. Um, he's become polarizing is a nice way to put that. Um, I think he went through some some really rough times after all of that. He had a he had a heart attack, he had a cancer scare, and um, yeah, his personality has completely changed. Like the Kurt I knew when I was there was a very loving, caring guy who took care of the people around him. Um, I was happy to call him a friend, and uh, I don't like seeing what's happened. So, yeah. All right, and we I think can leave it at that. That's a yeah. fair way of describing it. Um, yeah. So, let's see. Um, what happened to EQ next? That is something where if you get into the bonds here, I'll post the link again. Um, I think Ryan covers that a little bit in his. Um, maybe some other folks as well, but I know Ryan. That one's pretty close to to his heart. Um, Ryan, I don't know if you're still in here, but I uh, saw you in here earlier. Um, but yeah. So, oh no, no worries. No need to apologize. Uh, I tend to just put that up there because at this point we've already got like twenty hours of odds. This will add at a minimum twenty two, um, but we may be working towards twenty three if you've got time. Um, so, all right, thirty eight studios. D and D game in two hours. Otherwise, I'm free. So. Okay, D and D game in two hours, and uh, I'm assuming is that done via like video or are you actually. It is now uh, a combination of Roll20 and Discord. Like, we used to get together for uh, COVID. We just get together every couple of weeks, but now it's all it's all virtual. Right on. Cool. So you don't have travel time. Um, I'm going to be sitting here. Exactly. Yeah. If you need a quick bio break or whatever, just let me know. Um, otherwise... I'm going to get another drink here in a sec. Cool. Um, all right. So after 38 Studios... Yeah, so um, like I said, that whole thing was pretty traumatic. Um, I was out, I, I was out in uh, Rhode Island. There's not a lot of game stuff out there. Um, at the point, I was like looking for something stable, and like I said, the, the, it felt like the entire industry sort of descended on Providence to help find everybody jobs. And so um, at this point, I've got a decent amount of experience under my belt. And um, Amazon, a guy at Amazon, actually ended up reaching out through one of the friends there, uh, I think it was John Antonio, who's actually, coincidentally, the guy that, that was the programmer that I built one of the early um, Dragon demos with. Um, A friend of his, yeah, really small. Um, It was an ex-EA exec that was at Amazon Games before they really had any game studios. He was helping kind of found up the whole thing. And they didn't really have any designers there. And um, they were looking for somebody to kind of help out, build like an Xbox Live style avatar system, which is something, it's, it's really simple and really basic, but effectively the uh, the Kindle Fire devices were created to be um, sort of color e-readers, but a huge percentage of the use cases of them ended up being games, and so Amazon embraced that and said we should do more with the gaming side of things and start providing all the tools that game developers need to be on our platform. Uh, common things, uh, leaderboards uh, for players they wanted to do, an avatar style system where you can get um, 
a cute little dude on your, your screen that represented you and that kind of thing. And um, as a consumer, I absolutely love Amazon. Um, fantastic company, everything I ever wanted. Yeah, I can get it right there. And uh, super stable. You know, they've, they've got really deep pockets. And so, like, this sounds like a really cool opportunity. And I went out there, and um, I was out in Seattle for about two years, and uh, it really just wasn't a good fit for me. It's, it's, it's much more corporate than I was used to. I've been in game industries now for a really long time. We're, this was corp headquarters up in Seattle. And uh, the politics behind it was just driving me nuts. And so uh, I was only there for a couple of years. When I hit the end of my project, I, I was I exited at that point. And at that point, um, Scott Hartsman had reached out to me and he's like, hey, we could really use some help down here at Tryon. I'm like, cool, because I'm going insane up here. <laughs> and I moved down to help him out instead. So. It's yeah. the fact that you were there for a couple of years, though. Yeah, it was a good experience. Like, I got to see... Uh, how Amazon operates. I got to see a lot from the mobile gaming division, which I hadn't had any exposure to at the time. Um, and met some, some great folks there. Um, the guy that hired me in, uh, he left about a year after I got there and he and I are still in contact. Um, actually was just chatting with him a couple months ago about maybe starting up a whole new company myself. And, uh, he's got contacts everywhere. <laughs> going around seeing if that made sense. Um, I help him out with projects from time to time. Like he's always got something going on and he picks my brain for like, suggestions and feedback and that kind of thing. So yeah, good stuff came out of it. It's just, it, it's just not really a good place for me. Again, this was before Amazon games really existed. I think it would have been happier if I was part of one of the actual game teams there. Like yeah. I know some meds went up one down in San Diego and I was actually part of the group that came down to buy double helix, which is now the Amazon game studio in Irvine. Um, I, I was part of the team that came down to evaluate Double Helix at the time to see for purchase. So I, I got my, my tendrils in that, which was kind of fun. So. It's it's interesting because when you mentioned like the number of companies and people that came out to sort of support you guys, um, it's because you mentioned it twice um, and both times I, I immediately thought of SMED and I, I wanted to make just a, a, a quick note on there. Um, because uh, I was watching like the essentially the I think it's the death of the game death of the game series or whatever, and I was watching like a Vanguard one earlier today or something. I don't think people realize how much at least this is what I observed how much Smed would go out of his way to try to make sure that people that were part of Sony online at some point were taken care of. Like um, it's one of those things unless i'm missing something it, it, it seems like that's been one of those misconceptions over the years um like i i from as an outside observer um i always thought that was the case um and so when you mentioned like that folks were coming up there etc um that immediately came to mind yeah totally um, ironically i didn't know smed that well when i was at soe i talked to him once every six months when we pitched an expansion and but like afterwards i got to know him relatively well so, but yeah i get that impression too like he goes out of his way to help out people yeah. it just seems uh one he just seems a lot like a dude he was the first yeah. ceo i ever met he, he's a dude and he's a dude that loves games yep and some of the things were when i was working there i was frustrated or whatever it's because he's a dude and he loves games and has opinions about games. Yeah. And um, if he was more of a just sort of traditional CEO or something, he probably wouldn't have given a shit. Um, yep. And so that's where some of the conflict came. And I look back on it, I appreciate it completely. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, um, I learned a phrase from 
uh, Dustin Browder at Blizzard, which I wish I'd known back in the SOE days. He used to say, admirals can't have opinions, which um, it, it rings so true. Like when you're a CEO or even in a lot of cases, a design director or design lead, you really can't have an opinion on things because anything you say gets to- taken as gospel. You have to be very careful about doing that. And so Smed being a gamer, he's got all these ideas and he wants to get his opinions out there. But, you know, they don't necessarily come across as opinions. They might come across as you need to do this. Like he's got this really cool idea. And, you know, he's the CEO of the company. So, of course, people want to make him happy. He just wants to have these cool ideas, get them out there, too. It's just you have to be careful about that. Um, I used to, when, when I was still at Blizzard, I, I'd always, like, couch my um, my opinions when talking to other designers with, this is just my opinion. I want to, to do anything with it and get it out there first, because otherwise you might walk away and find out a week later that somebody spent, you know, 40 hours changing the shade of gray because you didn't like it. You know, something like that, you know. Yeah, a lot of prefacing. Like, yeah. I'm just putting out there, actually, do not do this shit unless you cannot think yeah, exactly. of anything else. But Just my opinion. Check with me first after you've checked with everybody else. But wouldn't it be cool <laughs> if... Um, no, I actually ran into that. I, I actually, when we were pitching the Mercenary game um, post-Planetside, uh, I kept getting feedback from a uh, producer we were working with that uh, I think it was... Smed, because it wouldn't have been Ross, uh, but Smed wants it like uh, Battlefield 1942, over and over, like, <laughs> and I was like, so finally I had to go up and I was like, so are we talking like fighting Nazis or like what? What is it about like you know like when we're talking? I think it was death or like matches or something. I was like, what? And it's like bucket respawn, like after all of this argument, uh, you know, at the team level about like. Uh, should, okay, we're doing mercenaries though, but like, should it be Germans? And it's like, well, like 1942. When I walked up and just asked, it was just like, bucket respawn, just bucket respawn. That sounds about right. Yeah. Cool. So, you end up a tryon with Scott. Yeah, and Bill Fisher, who you just had on recently too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was fun. It was a. He was just looking for somebody to kind of come in as just a general troubleshooter and help out. And so I came in there and hopped on uh, some Rift expansion that was going on and created some raid content for Rift. And then I went over and um, I took on the lead position for Defiance. Uh, that that project had a history where it was created down in San Diego and that, it didn't do very well. There was a lot of problems with it. Um, studio was shut down. The game was brought up to um, the San Francisco area to uh, to kind of you know, keep going. It was a really small team at that time. So I kind of took that over. Um, I had never played Defiance before in my life, so I had to learn how to do all the whole thing. Um, again, great experience, kind of. Um, it, was, it was another example of really leaning on the community, you know, pulling on a bunch of people that were really passionate about the game to figure out what the community wanted, what they liked, um, and, and kind of go from there. We did some really cool stuff on that. Um, but it, it's, it was a good example of... Uh, the game itself was... I mean, it was it was decent. Uh, it had a lot of problems, and uh, the audience on it wasn't super large. Like Rift was like the big money maker for Tryon, so Defiance was kind of there in the background. But it gives you a lot of freedom when you're in that position, and so um, you could do things that you couldn't do otherwise because there's not a lot of risk. And I remember um, this foundationally the way the combat system was built was uh, it was built to scale, and that was sort of like the the really basic thing about it was. Um, the area around you would always scale to your level and so all of the systems were built around that scaling factor 
And when they built it, for whatever reason, um, they built it with a single a single tuning variable that affected both PCs and NPCs, and everything was based around that. So it was impossible to tune NPCs separate from PCs. If you went in there and you wanted to increase uh, difficulty, everything increased proportionally, which was just a major pain in the butt. Uh, it made tuning basically impossible. And so I was able to, because there wasn't a lot of risk in it, and, and if I fucked it up, things weren't going to go horrible, went in there over the course of a week and just redid the entire combat system. And I remember my crowning achievement, what he noticed. It was fantastic. So I got in there, and now I've got two different tuning variables where I've got PCs and NPCs are separate, and I can tune them separately, and the player community never noticed. And that was perfect. <laughs> good job. <laughs> yeah, which allowed me to retune the game, which was good. Yeah, that's that's always like the sign of success when you're having to go in and gut something in a live game. It's like if no one notices, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, great success. Um, Bunny said Defiance is a good game, though. Was just talking like a week ago about how Defiance is probably the only MMORPG shooter you play. Yeah, I thought the biggest challenge with that ultimately was like I do my usual thing that I'm sure anybody that works on games does, which is as soon as I see an announcement, I start analyzing like. All right, how big of a pain in the ass is this going to be, or why is this overly ambitious? Or, like, I'm always thinking, like, what's the. I'm doing a risk assessment to see likelihood of launch and what it's probably going to happen after launch, et cetera. Yeah. And when I saw that win and its desire to sort of keep in parallel with a live production, like a TV show, is like, oh, yeah. okay, this will be interesting. Maybe they can pull it off. But yeah, yeah, that's that caused so many problems. <laughs> it was just it's it, like one of the big things that Defiance had the game had going for it were the Arc Falls, which are just the really cool, almost Rift style events, but in, in in Defiance, you know, content that would just spawn and everybody would congregate around. And it was really fun. And there was this big argument where the TV show wanted to get falls they're getting rid of all, all the debris up in space and such and we're just like you can't do that that's quarter our game and they ended up doing it anyway because they wanted to and so it just sort of bifurcated the the narrative and said it's doing its own thing that the game is now doing its own thing and it was just a mess yeah it's uh to, to me that that just seems like such a crazy challenge i, I try to picture a scenario in which that will work um yeah. Maybe one day in the future, if like everything is all just in one big studio or something. Um, but yeah, so like I was right. talking about. Uh, I was talking about like over the last few months, I started looking at going off and doing my own studio because yeah. it's possible. And like one of the ways I was looking at it was there's an there's an IP holder out there that wanted to do something in both games and uh, TV shows and stuff like that that was looking to fund us. And that experience from Defiance was, that painted a nice big red flag on that. Like, I'm not sure I want to get involved in that again. That was, that was pretty rough. So. Yeah, they would, they would really have to support each other in a way that, so we were doing this at my last company as well, where we um, spun up a publishing division, have a, uh, a division. We have a publishing person. We have a, um, uh, a music person, etc., and we're looking at the best ways to use those various verticals to support each other, but not be explicitly tied. Um, and I think that's about the only way that it, it really can work well. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just there, there's so many things, but like they're talking about. They're very early on, obviously. They hadn't done any of this, but they're they, they're saying the same thing. Like we want to keep them separate. 
and all that kind of stuff. But logistically, they end up being tied together just because they have to. Like if you're doing a, a, a big TV show or a movie or whatever, you're putting a ton of money into that. You're getting stars. And so a lot of your advertising is going to lean that direction, which means you're going to want to leverage all that to go into the other properties. And so the games can be affected by all of that stuff, even if up front you don't want it to be. So yeah. it's just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have to... Oh, hey, Big Good morning, Jeff. fam. <laughs> Thanks for the bits and the message. Um, you fudge that up. Uh, I don't know how. It seemed fine to me. Um, it just shocked the shit out of me, to be honest with you. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, I and again, I think you would need like whatever super ego or like you would need something at the top of that pyramid to sort of keep that shit all reined in and coordinated and deal with not just the logistics but the egos. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. so hey, but if um so it sounds like Jeff Bezos who you met while you're at Amazon was thinking about giving you some money to start a badass new company. If you decide because you're at a cool new company now that you don't want to Jeff Bezos money, we have been talking about Bezos money on the stream a good bit, and we would be more than happy to take a small satchel, not even a full suitcase, small satchel, um, and we can talk after this about you know Jeff's contact info or whatever. I wouldn't mind spinning up a little little something. So all right, sure, so, yeah. Oh, you broke up there. I'm sorry. <laughs> So next time he calls me, I'll pass that along. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I never got. I was I was one step away from him at one point. Whenever I actually got to meet him, while I was up there. And that one step was a giant security guard. Probably. No, like I said, it was very. Amazon's very political, so you have to go through all these different layers of management to, and every single one of them wants to like sign off on things. So the thing we were doing was was getting approved by all these different people, and at one point it was approved right below Jeff. We never got to actually talk to Jeff himself. <laughs> Yeah, I um, I, I just imagine. I, I mean, the closest I've ever seen was um, had the I was working with the company fairly briefly when I took a quick break from DC Universe Online, and we were pitching something to Microsoft. And I went to Seattle and met like Microsoft people in person, um, and you know, like sort of that was my first Microsoft experience, and I was like, I just would never survive here. Like they would just devour me. Like. I'm too much of a weirdo. Um, I mean, I could wear North Face. I could get the black room glasses again, but I just can't, I, like it, I, I just can't pretend to be that. So, and I imagine Amazon, um, not the game part, but just like Amazon. Amazon would be something like that for me. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've heard the games division is a little better because it's it's games. It's, an, it's you're creating art as opposed to um, Amazon is very. Uh, Procedural. They're very much driven by data, which is kind of the antithesis of art. Yeah. Um, so, all right, you were you were with uh, Scott at Tryon, and then what yeah, happened? actually. So after Defiance, I ended up. Um, so Bill Fisher ended up spinning up a little project there that I joined for a little while, and then um, this was. Uh, uh, I, th I was talking about my uh, my my wife at the time at Blizzard was the HR manager. She ended up being the HR manager at Tryon as well. And uh, this is part of the whole focus bit was um, she did a lot to help out people um, during that whole collapse. And so she had a pretty good reputation and a lot of people went other world you know, that went elsewhere, um, used her as an example of like what they like in HR. And a lot of people ended up at Blizzard. And so she ended up having Blizzard reach out to her to see if she would like to come down and join them. And at this point, she'd been following me around the industry for like 
I don't know, years or whatever. And she's got an offer from Blizzard. I'm like, okay, it's my turn to follow you. Um, Blizzard's amazing. You can't turn this down. And so um, uh, she ended up coming down to Blizzard and uh, Tryon asked me to just continue working remotely. So I moved down to uh, the Irvine area and just worked out of my, my bedroom for like a year. Um, it was like the week I got down here, uh, again, a lot of 38 people are now at Blizzard. Um, they reached out to me and they're like, hey, you need to come chat with us. We'd love to get you into Blizzard. In the course of a year or so, I ended up just talking with uh, the Heroes of the Storm team off and on. And um, they were really interested in getting me in there. But again, I hadn't played Heroes at this point. I spent like a year getting to learn the game. Not many rush, just uh, waiting for a good opportunity. And then about a year after I got down here, I ended up popping in to join the Heroes of the Storm team as a system designer there. So the transition to that. Um, yeah. Cool. So once you got your foot in the door, it sounds like that role grew a bit. Yeah, uh, it seems to happen everywhere I go. Um, yeah, I came in as a system designer there. The systems lead left about a month after I got there, so I stepped into the uh, the systems lead role. And then uh, about a year later, I, I stepped into the design lead role when Dustin stepped off to go um, do a new project. So. Okay. Um, so... What is there anything you can give us? Like, what was that like? I, I again, I didn't honestly. So, Hots, I, I really just I didn't get into. Um, but I also haven't played many MOBAs yeah. to be honest. It's the only MOBA I've ever really enjoyed. Um, it kind of goes back to a lot of what we were trying to do with MOBAs is make it so that you're sort of working with players as opposed to against them. Um, mm. You're not, it's not kill stealing within groups and stuff like that. And that was what always drove me nuts about League is I'm competing with my team at the same time that I'm working with them to um, take on the other team. And so Hot really doubles down on the, the aspect of that. You're really working with a team and you succeed or fail as a team. And that really appealed to me. And then you've got just fantastic Blizzard characters and the visual design is amazing. And so that game I really enjoyed quite a bit. Um, the team is, is absolutely fantastic too and uh, it was a good experience I got to learn a lot there uh, I was only on the team for like two years or so before I got tapped to go start up a new project um, but my time there was really great and uh, let me see uh, there are a couple of questions that came in so let me look at um, and I'll work my way sort of most recent back sorry guys um, question for Travis when he went across to the Blizz team, um, did he get a look at or have any thoughts on the Titan project before it was recycled? Uh, that was before my time. Yeah. So uh, by the time I got there, Overwatch was you know in development and launched slightly after, just shortly after that. And one of the uh, one of my colleagues from Austin um, is uh, I think he's. Or he was the, ex the ex executive producer on Overwatch, so it's like another Sony connection. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting how small the community can be sometimes, or the industry. Um, so well, you got, uh, you got go Brack. Uh, uh, sorry, I just blanked. Uh, Jay Allen Brack. Brack there is now. He took over from Morheim, so there's a Sony connection too. So yeah, and um, uh, well, and then all the other people that sort of came up uh, from. San Diego, as we were saying earlier. Uh, Chris is there yeah. as well. Chris Lina and a uh, number of people. Um, yep. Yeah, still there. Uh, let's see. What is the other question? Uh, were you 
so retro gamer 5000 were you satisfied with the classes um were designed in wow there are mixed receptions some upset with how classes were changed in extreme ways i don't know is that an applicable question professionally or just personally uh, i never really did much with wow um obviously i didn't touch it uh by the time i got to blizzard i was sort of done with mmos i wanted to do something new so i didn't have anything to do with wow while i was there personally i didn't play a ton of wow i played it pretty casually um everquest was always more my thing and i didn't like the way wow's end game worked so i never really got into it okay and so i'm pretty sure you can't say anything about the project that you left hots for um i would assume yeah, yeah except i spent a couple of years on it it was it was a good opportunity um I got to create, basically, I, from scratch, I started my own little team there. Uh, I spent a couple of years working on it, and uh, it was just shut down along with a few other projects last year. Okay. Um, culturally, did you notice differences, I mean, aside from Amazon? I, I'm really curious what you kind of perceived and what it felt like across the companies. Like, when I, when I hear your stories about 38 Studios... Culturally, first of all, knowing some other people that shared the same sentiment, um, like Neeraj and, and folks like that, I know him, and he's a great guy. So if he was super happy with the culture, then I think it was the right culture. Um, what what was it like all the way through? Was it was it almost always the same? Was Blizzard very similar to Try On to Thirty Eight? No, they're all very different. Like going back to Sony, even VR One, every company's got its own kind of feel to it. Um, I mean, fundamentally, everybody's still there because they want to make an awesome game. I haven't worked in any companies where it's just sort of people just churning shit out. Everybody's, everybody's always passionate. Um, but every, every, company's, every company's got a very different feel to it. Um, SOE, everybody felt really young. Like, to me, I always likened that to, like, a high school. There was a lot of clicks there going on, lots of rumor-mongering, and there's some, some shitty shit that went on behind people's backs. Um, but, again, people were... Was very early in the industry, people were still kind of growing and learning. Um, yeah. Thirty Eight Studios again, it gets it's kind of a cliche at this point. People talk about it a lot, but it did feel like a family, especially early on when everything was really small. Um, they're at Kurt's house for Christmas and just things like that. It was it was really cool. Um, Amazon expect is giant monolithic organization. Uh, about as far from game development as I could get. Um, um, Trion was an interesting one. Is it always felt a little sad because a lot of the people that were the, had been there had been part of the um, happened previously, and so there was. It always felt a little dark. Um, like people were always waiting for the next shoe to drop because uh, mm. they had they had uh, shut down the San Diego studio and the Austin studio, and can, everything had been kind of pulled back, or at least game development there, and pulled back into um, the Bay Area. And then I guess through some cuts there as well. And so it was always it always felt a little dark there. Really um, large company, and every team is almost its own little mini company within it. So they all have very different feels to them. But it's kind of cool that you can see the the personality of the team in the game itself. Like the Diablo team, they always feel like the goth kids, right? It, it, the, you can see it in their, their project. You go into their area and it's all dark and posters of blood and shit all over the place. Um, you go into the Hearthstone area and they're always celebrating. Some feels like somebody's already brought in a cake and people are dancing and having fun. I mean, not really, but 
<laughs> it feels that way. Posters <laughs> of blood. <laughs> it just, it, it, it's, it's just interesting how the games take on the, uh, the feel of the team or vice versa, one or the other. Yeah. No, I, dude, I just came from a team that was a horse adventure game yeah. for girls in Sweden. So trust me, I, I know about, I know about cake. I know about yep. dancing. I know about hugs. I tend to hug at a distance. Um, I sure. do like Keanu yeah. Reeves hugs. Um, uh, Safety hug. Yes. Yes. Uh, plus, I'm just so awkward. Like in person, uh, you guys may not realize this because I'm so natural and smooth on the stream, but I'm the most awkward, weird person in real life. Um, so I'm just like, uh, don't touch me. I'll malfunction. Um, let's see. Uh, but that makes sense, man. Um, <laughs> I was just yeah, wondering. I do place mutant a few weeks ago, and um, I've always loved the, the ability to actually be hands-on, and so the small team thing really resonated with me. So when I had my my team at Blizzard, it was just like I think we got at, at most we were like twelve or thirteen people. It's just it's a fantastic environment because everybody's so collaborative, and you can actually be doing stuff. So now I'm kind of back to that again with a nice small team, and I'm loving it. Nice. And it's, I mean, it's, it's also people that you're really familiar with, right? I mean, yeah. it, it sounded like, I mean, the names that I've seen, I think on LinkedIn were all fairly familiar. Yeah. Um, I mean, Blake, you obviously know Blakely and probably yeah. Seasler. Those two yeah. would probably jump out. Um, everybody on there is pretty senior though. Yeah, that's what it looked like. Um, and I was, I was just kind of Googling around like, where the hell is this? And the area and everything seems like really cool spot it's a dream. yes that, that's it's i tell people this is the first time i've moved for a job where the environment wasn't um secondary to the position itself like i'm moving there partly because of the environment like i want to be in you know where they are they're in bend oregon which um my favorite places in the world are colorado and seattle and uh, Ben seems to take the, the best parts for both of those. It's got like Colorado weather, but it's got the like, Northwest vibe to it. Um, you don't get all the rain from Seattle. You're, I mean, when we out there to the studio, we um, we like drove around the area and like the best the best way I had this explained to me was somebody said it, it feels like Ben was created by a junior level designer because it's got like four different environments that are just kind of mashed together along lines. You've got the high desert, you got like the the alpine forest, you've got the mountains, and you've got literally just lava flows, like old lava flows, and they're just each like different quadrants. Like if you go to the northeast, it's desert. You know, to the the, the uh, southeast, you've got forest. To the southwest, you've got the lava flows, and it's 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 really funny. But the huge variety of things. Fifteen minutes outside of town, you can be t- hiking around lava, or you know, dude, half an hour you can be up in the slopes. Yeah. Junior level designer. That level designer yeah. sounds like a genius. I think. Yeah. I, I think we need to get back to that. I mean, hell, I'm sitting here right now, and I can just walk for a few minutes and be in lava, and then walk a few minutes in the other direction and be like in a nice open common lens. Yeah. Games have overcomplicated shit. This is brilliant here, and it sounds like Bend, Oregon, was designed by the same level of brilliance. Halla Games, thank you for the follow. No loading times, though, which is nice. Uh, I think they liken it to a junior level designer because there's no blending between them. It's just like they just plop the environment down and there's a hard line between it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, dude, I, I, 
I have a lot of bad ideas about games, I, especially these days. I, I hear that, and I'm like, no. Hard zone lines, no blending. Screw this. Let's take it all the way back to the origin. I'm not even joking. It, when I get that Jeff Bezos money, we'll see. Um, there you go. Let's see. Retro Gamer 5000 asked, did you have any involvement in Eldon since you were EQ game designer and lead designer? Um, and uh, Vexar, if you had any involvement in... Um, uh, I thought DODH improved upon dungeons. Grats if you're involved. Same with DON. Um, yeah. So um, Eldon, like I said, I came in um, halfway through Eldon, and I was just uh, doing live design at that point. So I didn't do much with Eldon itself. I think I might have helped like populate one of the dungeons or something, but there wasn't a whole lot going on there. Um, uh, Depths of Dark Hollow, though, I was lead during that point. Um, I remember that one. That was fun. Cool. Um... Yeah. All right. Is it? Is there anything that? Um, is there? Is there? Is it too early? Would Blakely get mad if you blamed about what you're doing in any sort of way? Are you making a mobile match three game? <laughs> Probably not. Um, no, I can't talk about that at all. It's way too early. Um, yeah. I'll be happy to talk about it once that stuff's public. But you know, this stuff goes. Absolutely. Um, I just have to make some assumptions when I look at the crew there, but uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah. I will say that we're excited about the project, which is a really great place to be. Cool. Um, And uh, Brent Copeland just asked, did you start with the acronyms and then work your way backward into the title of the expansions? (laughs) No, but I will name is definitely shot down a few titles um, you're getting into this really cool name and then you realize that uh, it's going to be used for slang in a horrible way and you have to get rid of it because the acronym doesn't work yeah I could imagine cool dude alright so we have done close to close to three hours this is two wow. hours and 48 minutes um, I always would I would hear that on the Joe Rogan like podcast where they're like, Oh man, we just did three hours and it's like, Oh wow, that was really quick. Um and yeah, it, it, it happens here as well. Um not trying to rush you off and there are a couple more questions that popped in, but I do think you know, I know you've got stuff to do and at some point I'm going to get up and get to the bathroom anyway, so we'll see how this times out. Um not get thin, fairly broad question with EQ coming back strong in TLP servers and now WoW Classic obviously drawing on that success for their own. Um, how do you think this will uh, affect the Western MMO market? Are we likely to see other companies restart their titles? I don't think it's going to affect the market that much. Um, I mean, the like WoW Classic has obviously done really well for WoW. Um, but the investment to make a game like this is, is fun. It's, it's huge. Um, the, there's just out there doing it currently, but I don't think you're going to have a bunch of people suddenly jump into the MMO market that work currently. Um, it's just, it, there's just too much that goes into it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty challenging. Um, but these guys have also, I think, a lot of folks that have been on the stream have heard me blab about uh, niche MMOs, like working on a couple relatively small MMOs the last five years. Um, but seeing sort of the numbers in the background, looking at our KPIs, looking at revenue, um, profitability and stuff, it has opened my eyes to the potential of approaching niche MMOs as niche MMOs, business model wise. 
Um, but yeah, I don't. go ahead. Exactly right. It's the the problem you run into is with the funding. Um, it's it's really hard to get funding for a niche game because when you're looking at um, venture capitalists or something like that, they're willing to take big bets, but they want big payoffs. And so it's it's really difficult to get a the funding you need to make an MMO that's niche. You almost have to find an angel investor or yeah. do it out of pocket or something like that. Yeah, a lot of bootstrapping, um, you know. And I would say that it's a shame that some of the crowdfunding and stuff has gone the route that it has in the past, and maybe yeah. a, a few turnarounds that remain true to being niche and actually deliver could rejuvenate that or rehabilitate the image um because i do see you know like the potential there especially there's so much money money being spent in like mna like um if you can get the project rolling these days and show that it's small but it's profitable or whatever there is opportunity for acquisition um let's see um can Travis say what genre of game his project at Blizzard was? Mills asked. No, I can't. Unfortunately, uh, that's all secret stuff. Yeah, that's I was pretty excited about, but I wouldn't. <laughs> um, well, yeah, uh, the about that whole thing it was really funny. So, at the start of the year, um, sort of this whole thing, the, the project was shut down like late last year, and I sort of took off, like all to kind of recuperate. It was pretty traumatic. And when I came back, I was offered a bunch of different positions. And the one I stepped into was a design lead over all of Team One, which was one of those things that when you look back, like, uh, like 20 years ago, and like, oh my God, you're going to be in charge of, I was in charge of uh, StarCraft, StarCraft II, Diablo II, Diablo III, Heroes of the Storm, and War III after it launched. And I'm like, these are these games that I remember spending so much time with growing up, especially the Diablo franchise, like one of my absolute favorites. And now... Here I am, design lead over all of them. Like, this is wild. Yeah, it's. Uh, I would. I wonder, was it stressful? Like, did that put stress on you when you thought about it, or was it at that point you're kind of like, yeah, but I got it. Yes and no. Um, so each one of those has its own team, and they just didn't have a unified leadership. Uh, there's basically everybody's every every one of those games has got people dedicated to them. They just didn't really have anybody that could kind of come in and help uh, provide sort of high level design leadership and direction. And so that's what I was providing. But um, that's that's not what I love doing. I love making games, not just like sort of being a manager. Mm-hmm. And this question seems kind of linked. Retro Gamer Five Thousand asks, "With your vision of lead design, did you use what you learned about uh, lead design when you imp- uh, when you're implementing uh, when implementing in other MMOs?" Is there? And then a separate question: Is there anything you would go back and change about DODH? But yeah, so I'm I'm curious how your evolution then like um, influenced your leadership, especially when you get handed all of these games. Yeah. I mean, you're always learning and growing. So I'm, I'm sure things I did in the past have influenced the future. You're always taking lessons forward. Um, the, I think the biggest thing, biggest challenge for me moving into a lead position was just learning to sort of let go. Like, um, as a lead, you're, uh, you're more valuable as a force multiplier, helping out other people than being hands-on and doing things, even if you're the best person to do those things. And uh, that was the biggest thing I had a problem with when I took over the lead on EverQuest with that transition of going from um, individual implementer to the lead is you need to teach and empower other people. 
And so um, that lesson has stuck with me for a long time. And so um, that's probably one of the bigger things carried forward to all the other ones is just making sure that the, the teams you're leading, um, you're empowering them to do the things as opposed to trying to take it all on yourself and making sure that when I say empowering, I'm not talking about just you know telling people to do something and helping them, but I'm talking making sure that the team feels like they're invested into it, that they're providing, um, they're actually the ones creating the game. And that might mean that they go in a different direction than what you originally envisioned. And that can be a good thing. Um, but that's that's a challenging thing to learn, especially when you get a really strong vision about something. Um, yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you would change if you could go back to Depths of Dark Hollow? Oh, probably, but I don't remember it well enough at this point to cool. speak to the specifics on it. I, I'm sure that with another guy with 50 experience, if I was to do that over, it would be done differently. Yeah, yeah inevitably. Um, yeah. Um, and then Bunny's question, which kind of ties into your next action. Um, very important question. What is your D&D character? <laughs> so we're playing an online game right now, which has been mostly combat, and so I because it was fun, a turtle, which is like the playable giant turtle people. And I think after a ninja turtle, I named him Caravaggio because I thought it'd be a good name to go along with it. A turtle. What has happened to D&D? I've been out of the loop for quite a while. You're playing yes. a turtle. A turtle. A giant turtle. It's a 450 pound turtle person. They're called turtles. And I, I played it completely as a, I thought it'd be fun to do for just kind of, like we're doing an online game right now to pause our normal campaign because online just has different strengths than when you're playing in person. Um, and so I, I, it was an opportunity, just pure fun. Yeah. Um, when you say a 450 pound turtle person, I, that still doesn't mean you have to be very big. Turtles are very dense. Yes. And he does have these special ability to pull into his shell as a defensive action. I can hold his breath for an hour. It's kind of fun. I can see all sorts of role play opportunities there. <clears throat> yeah. I, of course, went with the, the, the tact that he is, um, he's incredibly slowly. He moves incredibly slowly, but he's also a combat monk. So when things kick into high gear, he is by far the fastest person in the group. So he just flies into a frenzy during combat, but all other times, slow. That makes a lot of sense. I, I can picture that. I would see the conservation <laughs> of energy leading to that sort of event. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Um, dude, we are, we are hitting the 10 o'clock mark here, like almost on the dot. Um, I've got one more question in from Retro Gamer, and then I'd say, you know what? Like, let's call this one a wrap unless you've got um, something very specific and then what we can see is just um, we'll put the VOD up and like see what questions come up also see if anything comes to mind and at some point um, I also want to try to do a group or different group ones where we get a few of you together and see how that triggers some memories yeah that'd be awesome so last question here Retro Gamer 5000 with involvement in expansions in lead why did you guys put frog locks in rather was it part part of it to deal with the people farming hill giants? Huh? Let me think I'm about that sure. one. Um, the retro gamer. I will let you. I'll give you an opportunity to. <laughs> oh, and wrath. Uh, um, wrath, 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 wrath. Okay. Uh, 
I have no idea. I don't think I had anything to do with frog locks and wrath. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Uh, we invaded, uh, like, we did the invasion during LOI, and then... Oh, yeah, that was cool. I forgot about that. So that that part was just... Honestly, we talked about it a little bit in the past, but the frog lock thing was... Um, I forgot who reminded me of this, but it was... Maybe you... Maybe it was Akil, maybe it was Ryan, maybe... Anyway, it was like, we can't do two different... Uh, we can't do male-female, so we'll just do different colorations on the same model. That'll give us male-female. Uh, it was strictly logistics, because LOI, LOI was like such a short turnaround expansion. Um, and it's yeah. like, all right, so that'll shave time. We'll do Broken Skull Rock, because we could probably do some unique stones and have that all just be an island, and so it makes sense that's together. Cool, that makes sense. We'll repaint the um, trolls as, you know, voodoo zombie pirate things because we can get a lot of just repaints and not have to make new models with the exception of a couple. Um, it was all logistics. And then we'll invade, <laughs> we'll, we'll invade uh, Grob, right? Wasn't it Grob? I always, for some reason, I... I yeah, keep, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it was just actually like... like monster, remember, right? Hmm? Did they actually like march across the zones too? Yeah, um, I think it, oh, who was it? Maybe it was a kill. Somebody just reminded me that it was like David White um, did a script where it was just like Frogarks running across and killing everything on the way into nice. into the city. Yeah, yeah, dude. You know what? It has been really awesome catching up with you. Um, like. Uh, definitely don't be a stranger i'll follow up with you and especially when you get to a point where maybe you guys can um talk a little more i'd love to kind of hear what's going on um and yeah i'll, I'll have to catch up with blakely at some point tell those guys i say hi definitely um, and yeah dude um no i'm excited I, yeah likewise uh, and uh, it, it's funny because, like you said, every one of these triggers a little more memories, and I got the feeling that as the puzzle comes together, I'll have some more questions for you. Um, cool. So what I'll do next is, um, like the other ones that you've seen, I'll go in and I'll snip out just this three-hour section, um, and I'll put it up there. And uh, yeah, man, sounds great. Cool. Cool. Well, I'll talk to you. Later. All right. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Yep. Bye. Bye.